0: I'm telling you, I am I'm only like half joking. By half joking I mean ninety nine percent joking. I'm telling you, Jameis Winston, future GOAT. And then the look on Bruce Arian's face is like, seriously, we couldn't figure out LASIK was the problem? Now he can see, now he can hit a receiver. <laughs> it be,
1: it's just so perfect.
0: Like, I want this, Dave. You don't, you don't like, I will sacrifice the next five years of Packer football if somehow Jameis Winston becomes an all-time great and Tom Brady sits there looking stupefied. I want the Tom Brady face. I will put it on a poster. It will be in my house. You are listening to episode 52 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast, the podcast of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they likely know nothing about for an indeterminate timeline in a hastily thrown-together format. Brought to us by Jameis! I'm Carlos Aguasar, and with me as always is Dave Turbo. It's
1: a good use of yelling, I think, Carlos. I mean, it's no fight island, but, you know, it's it's not bad.
0: It's very important. The, the thing is, I don't really have any hashtag fight island here, but, uh, but you know, Jameis will do. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about him. He was my special piece that I saved uh, when we went over the format a little bit. So we're going to talk about a couple of things, including my good friend Jameis, or as I like to call it, the number one quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, backed up by that spark plug, Drew Brees. So we'll talk more about that. At least they have
1: receivers, Carlos. At least they have receivers.
0: Oh, that they do. That they do. And this
1: year I can actually say receivers as opposed to a receiver.
0: Yeah, well, that's fair. We'll talk a little bit about that. There's going to be a little bit, a fair bit of football here talking about a couple of different things. So the first section of it, we're going to, we're going to have a little chat like we usually do about what's going on. But then once we get into it, I will let you all know that there's going to be a little bit of rapid fire with a couple of these, because a couple of these stories are are there. They're a little bit interesting. There's a little bit of meat on the bone, but I don't really want to go in depth. The big thing I want to talk about is kind of the, the dual threat going on right now between, of course, the last dance, which is, you know, the zeitgeist right now, everybody who's involved in sports is watching the last dance because we're all compelled and fascinated. We're four episodes in, so we'll t- give our thoughts related to that. And then also uh, the SB Nation documentary that I've recommended the last couple of weeks, Dave got himself caught up on it and went down the rabbit hole, watched uh, all five episodes so far. So we're going to have some thoughts on that because, guys, if you haven't watched this thing, it's really good. And I, know.
1: And I even I really- have a tidbit uh, that isn't mentioned in the documentary, which I think people will
0: find quite entertaining perfect and the thing is I, and i cannot emphasize this enough i had to reactivate my netflix account to get the last dance of course you can you, you can find it in sites and stuff but i'm like you know i don't mind patronizing netflix for a little while just to have a quality documentary in in good that shows up well that i don't have to go find on some site but the other thing is the sb nation one it, it, it's on youtube guys it's free you don't even need to have a youtube account to be able to watch this thing so there's really no excuse and, and it's actually so it's well.
1: comparatively are, are relatively short right right I think the longest one is like 47 minutes.
0: Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those things. It's a six-part documentary. They're five episodes in, and they're going to have one more week of episodes, and then it's retained on the SB Nation site, so you can go binge-watch it basically up until this point, and then next week we'll get part six. And like I said, for a team that really doesn't have that much going for them, you would think, there, there's, there's some meat on that bone. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, uh, let's have a little chat here, Dave. So what's been going on the past week?
1: Uh, this week has basically been trying to get into the rhythm of being in the house and and working and really kind of the home office is now officially set up in the new place which is good so i'm i'm doing the work there and i sort of have my space now where i go and i do my work and and sort of the times when i'm, I'm going to be online and you know answering emails marking things etc cetera, etc cetera. this i guess past week and a half has been pretty intense in terms of because we had to do some midterm marks and chase kids for things and whatnot Uh, And then it's been the weather's been a little bit nicer. So getting out and and enjoying the weather in terms of just basically going for some walks with George and uh, watching people stock up and beer and being like, your choices are Bud Light, Coors Light, which I don't mind from time to time, you know, as as a cheap kind of yeah, I just want some beer and MGD, which I find is a very gassy beer. I'm not a fan of it at all that's what you chose to stock up on? Like, Is your point you're just going to get like drunk day after day after day? But then again, it's also like, but it's basically like water, so you're going to have to drink a lot of that to get drunk. And I was just very disappointed in that individual that I saw in the parking lot. And he had probably at least 12 cases. Here's the other interesting thing about that, though. He obviously went to the beer store, not the LCBO. Uh, They were in the same parking lot, just so you know. But he only had 12 packs. He didn't have any two-fours. And I'm like, you bought enough that you could have two fours of each type of this beer. I question that man's choices. So many questions, Carlos.
0: So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to pick apart here, Dave. Um, obviously, to your point, you know the two four is the more economical option. You actually do pay more generally for twelve, so that's just that's just bad math right there. But that's the what I'm saying, uh, man, it- that's what I'm saying. Yeah. MGD, I don't have any problem with because I, I, I've i had it at the local pub here when there's nothing else of interest on. I'm fine with it. As, as far as a beer is concerned, at least it's a beer. But two light beers, like light beer, yeah, I would have advised that, man, you know, you can buy cases of water. They're cheap. You can you can get a 12 of water for like two or three bucks. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than you know or light beer. which is tap water.
1: Then you don't have to yeah. spend any money.
0: Yeah. It's literally the same thing. You may as well. At that point, it defeats the purpose of even trying to drink. At that point, you may as well go to the supermarket and get the non-alcoholic beer, which is... Oh, but I like the taste. Who likes the taste of beer enough to have it with no alcohol?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't. I was like, I I don't get it. And I was like, I probably should mock you, but I have things to do and, and places to be. I'm gonna let that one go. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I come on. I set it up for you on a platter there, Carlos.
0: No, you literally put it on a tee. I'm not gonna lie. But when you make it that easy, it's like you know what? I have enough pride in my in my chirping game that I. All right. I just I, want I you to know I,
1: I I did that intentionally, Carlos, for you. Of
0: course you did. Of course you did. So this week was actually pretty straightforward for me. I will say that yesterday actually was really nice. It was beautiful outside. I even dared to venture outside to sit on my uh, to sit on my stairs for a couple of minutes. Mind you, part of the reason for that is that I got kind of roped into it because. Uh, I, apparently I have a new neighbor and I didn't realize that because I don't pay attention but um, the, th- the funny thing was that I went out to actually to go check my mail because I was expecting some stuff in the mail and the mailbox was empty but then they start chatting with me and I'm like well I'm not uh, going to be able to easily just turn around go right back out the door <laughs> so I may as well just sit here and take the sunshine for a couple of minutes uh, at least I had my shades on so I was able to sit there without blinding myself which is nice I applaud anyone who's bold enough when it's actually sunny outside to sit there and just be like yeah I'll just stare at the sun basically
1: Hold on. No, uh, Hold on. so you went out to check your. So you put on your sunglasses to go
0: check the mail. You're damn right. I protect my eyes, Dave. I care about my eyesight. <laughs> it's like you can literally reach your mailbox without
1: actually leaving your house.
0: No, I actually can't. I have to go. Is my mailbox the is around the. It's around the door. Uh, you like you, fi- if
1: you had like you re- one of those, like uh, like a claw or something, you
0: could. But yeah, a claw that bends around. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, like, but still, man, milk- dude, who wears
1: their sunglasses to check their mail when it's attached to their house? And literally, it's like two steps.
0: That's two steps in the sunshine, Dave. I gotta protect the. I didn't the realize
1: bitterness. you were so vampiric in your in your uh, look on
0: life. Wait, literally, you didn't realize this? <laughs> well, I mean,
1: as someone who goes and actually like physically watches baseball, which is an outdoor sport.
0: Uh huh. Well, well, like, when I want to go watch the va- physical game of baseball, yeah. But when I go to watch baseball, I am watching it with shades on
1: fair enough but are you wearing like, your shade like do you wear your shades on the go train because it's sunny
0: outside yeah you're damn right i do all right i'll just leave that one be you can leave it be i'm very consistent on this this isn't the first time you're just not paying attention i've done it from day one and yes i will wear my shades to go to the mailbox and i'll wear my sunglasses at night there you go
1: you and cory hart man you and Corey hart
0: hey at least he understands he understands my he understands my ways yes he does yeah, but the thing is, you know, for the most part, it was pretty good. I will say things are starting to pick up at work because now we're we're approaching the we're about a month out from uh, rolling out uh, the thing, the system that I that I utilize on for thousands of users. So there's a lot there's a lot left to go on, and then this next week is going to be testing and all that. So it's going to get progressively busier. Now we're reaching the part where it's like, okay, now is what you guys are paying us to do. So now is the time. So it's going to be interesting because it's going to make the week go by a lot quicker, I would say. And it is um, because up until this point. My time has not gone a lot faster, a lot slower than for anybody else. It's been kind of normal, but I will say this next month will probably be pretty quick. Although I did, it did kind of catch me by surprise Friday when it was like, oh, yeah, it's actually May. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. It, it does kind of, especially when you're not really paying attention too much to what day of the week it is and it doesn't really matter. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's May.
0: Yeah. I think the other part of it, to be honest with you, though, is that I felt like it's been unseasonably cool for this time of year. I agree. And, and you know, I'm not actually sure that it has been. Uh, you know,
1: cause some other people that I've talked to about that have been like, really? No, I don't. And I'm like, really? I,
0: I think that's perception though, because I was uh, listening in, uh, like I was hearing, uh, when I was over helping my parents out with something, they had the radio on and they were having a chat about this. And apparently the April, like average temperature for us, the last couple of years has been around 14 degrees. And I remember that, that during the whole month, like it we we'd be at like 10, nine, 11. So realistically, actually it's been a couple of degrees cooler than average the whole month. Now, mind you, we're not talking about the difference between like 14 degrees and minus five, but we're talking about like a couple of degrees cooler than usually. You, when you're talking about an average, there should have been some days it would have been like 16, you know, something like that. And it didn't really happen in April. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what threw it off. Mind you, if somebody is like, like I said, it's been like that for so long now. I think most people, I think people have weather amnesia. I think this is a real thing. Like they, they're like, oh, it's always been like, no, it literally hasn't.
1: <laughs> I like it. weather amnesia the the weather amnesia thing
0: yeah that'll be my new theory that i'm gonna posit guys it's weather amnesia like don't rely on your memory go look it up and then you can tell me and then we can talk about the truth what actually happened because for some reason when we were all young it was colder or hotter than reality and we went both we went uphill both ways in a in a full blizzard part of that might be true but you know not all of it
1: yeah i hear you man just saying amnesia though i like it i like it you could you know market that
0: that's a, that's going to be a new thing, Dave. If, if we get nothing out of this podcast, this episode, it is that whether amnesia is a thing, I have identified it, and that is what we're calling it from now on.
1: I, I support you,
0: man. I support you on this. Other than that, it's been pretty good. I've been kind of enjoying myself, keeping myself busy uh, with different things. I was uh, One of my great joys is I actually started calculating and working it out, and I have realized how much money I'm saving on commuting. And Dave, I'm rich.
1: Nice. I like it.
0: This is what I've discovered. I am now rich. Only I, be, if only because I don't have to spend money on, uh, on a go train followed by a TTC. And for some reason, I didn't realize it, even though it totally happened like last month. You don't get a discount going from the go train to the TTC anymore. Oh. Yeah, you, you used to get like a fairly low, substantial discount. And now it's like, you can pay full price for both. Bastards. It, it's terrible. It's one of those things. I think that's a provincial government thing. So if you're in Ontario, Canada, and you take these two things, enjoy paying more. Have fun. Boo. Indeed. Anyway, enough of that. So let's have a little bit of fun here. Uh, I'll be honest with you. The first two of these stories, Dave, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna name them off both right now because uh, my response to both is like, yeah, whatever. Andy Dalton and you had a thing on Manny Ramirez. Let's talk about the Andy Dalton thing, though, for a second. Okay, so um, I, I do you mean, have any this, particular thoughts on this? Well, this isn't particularly
1: – I don't think it's particularly surprising. Uh, obviously, they drafted Joe Burrow number one, and everyone expects him to be the starting quarterback, and he's obviously going to be. Uh, Barring, you know, injury or some act of God or or something like that. But it's interesting to see. I'm more interested to see if anything actually happens to Andy Dalton. Like, does anyone actually pick him up? Uh, You know, one of the things that have been going around in in several circles sort of on the radio um, has been... Uh, that he's actually an ideal candidate for the Patriots job.
0: He would be just from the perspective. I think the, that's one of the things making the rounds with the talking heads. And it's been interesting because uh, obviously we, there's two name quarterbacks and you, you can call them name quarterbacks or not. But the thing is, Andy Dalton had some decent success in Cincinnati considering it's Cincinnati. He, it's basically him and Cam Newton and everybody would keep looking at the two. And I think Andy Dalton is an easier one to work with, if only because he can be a bridge. Now that really comes down to whether they think Jared Stidham is the guy. I have no evidence to suggest he is, but if Bill Belichick has convinced himself, so be it. The truth is, I, I'd probably try to bring in LD Dalton for like as little as he'll take, as a backup potentially, who can potentially take over if you need him.
1: Well, at this point, you know, I kind of think he would.
0: Yeah, right? you I mean, get him I cheap. Mean, it's I think.
1: like one of those things. Right. I mean, I know you want to talk about this later, or maybe you don't. Maybe you just wanted to rib me at the beginning, but it's sort of this whole thing with Jameis Winston, too, right?
0: Oh, no, we're going to talk about it later. Okay. I got some thoughts on Jameis. Right.
1: But but the the idea that, you know, the market for you as a starting quarterback is basically non existent. Right. So why not take a a job as a backup or even a third string, depending on what shakes down, uh, you know, where you can learn under someone who's really good. Uh, um, maybe you know something goes down and you have a chance to play, and maybe it pans out for you. I mean, the 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 best example of that in recent history is Teddy Bridgewater, right? He probably could have, maybe even started last year somewhere, depending.
0: Uh, not could have, Mitchell Trubisky. Okay,
1: but but no, but the point is that he he said, you know what? I'm not kind of I don't like the situations out there. I'm gonna go back to New Orleans for another year. Uh, mm-hmm. he ended up starting five games with the Saints, won all yep. five. And, and turned that into a nice contract for himself with Carolina Panthers. Yes. Right? Who, and now he's going to be, again, barring some injury or act of God, he will be their starting quarterback.
0: That's right. No, I, I, I'm in agreement with that. And I think it's interesting because the, the the guys get lumped together because you've got, like I said, we're going to talk more about Jameis in a couple of minutes here. But they lump Jameis with Andy Dalton, with Cam Newton, and they're like three different scenarios. Jameis kind of understood where he fell in the pecking order. Although... Out of the three guys, he had technically the best and technically the worst season of the three. But there are mitigating circumstances. But the point is, uh, out of them, to me, Andy Dalton is a prime candidate for this because really I think his expectations are going to be a little bit more realistic where Cam Newton, I think, would want to be the starter. He'd want to be the de facto guy. He wouldn't want to necessarily be a bridge to the quote unquote future. And also he would cost more. And New England Patriots don't really have a lot of cap room to work with. I feel like you could fit Andy Dalton under the cap if he's willing to work with you to get an opportunity. And I think it's an easier sell for him where he's like, you know what? Beggars can't be choosers. If someone wants you and you get to, if the worst case scenario is you get to be coached up by Bill Belichick, that's not the worst thing in the world that could happen. No, not at all. Yeah. So that could be a win-win if they could make the money work and if Andy Dalton would consider it. So that's really kind of a thing that I would put out there.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's what happens, right? Obviously, um, there's still time, and we'll see.
0: So, okay, you want to say anything about the Manny Ramirez thing?
1: I, I just think it's well, it's so Manny Ramirez, right? So he's retired, obviously. He's 47, and mm-hmm. now it comes out that he wants to make a comeback. Uh, he's actually turning 48 by the time he would play baseball uh, in Taiwan. And sure. I was like, like, I just don't get it, right? Like, I mean. It's like one of those things where it's like, dude, like you're in your late 40s. I get that you're Manny Ramirez and and you think that you're, you know, you're, you're super amazing uh, and you have already played in league once you played in 2013 and you're saying, you know, attendance quadrupled because I was there. I probably didn't, but it's like, I don't know. Like, do you, is anyone really want to pay money to watch a 48 year old Manny Ramirez do Manny stuff? Like I don't, maybe, maybe they do in Taiwan. I'm not sure. But I just thought it was one of those, another one of those things is like, sometimes people, you just got to like, just give up, man. Just give it up. Like, get into coaching or like, or don't make a story of yourself because if you're 47, you're playing in another league, like obviously you're not getting a major league job. So you're going to play in a Taiwan league and now you're taking a job. Well, I guess, you know what though? Here's the other thing. If you're taking a job from somebody, they're probably not that good to begin with because if you're 47 years old and you're beating out somebody who's in, you know, like their 20s, then you probably shouldn't be playing professional baseball anywhere anyway. Just saying, but I don't know. I said, give up the ghost, Manny. There's, there's too many stories lately of people who just don't understand when it's over and they need to give it up. See, Dana White.
0: Yeah, well, that's a that's a different conversation. So I'll I'll opine a couple of a couple of thoughts on this. I really don't care if Manny Ramirez wants to play baseball in Taiwan. Let him play baseball in Taiwan. You kind of made the the salient point at the end there, where like, look, if he's good enough, quote unquote, to be able to take a roster spot, you know, or if they think his name is worth a couple of bucks, you know, more power to them. I I think with Manny Ramirez, the problem is... Okay, so let me give you two comparables, and I'll explain how he's probably not matching up either one very well. So I'll give you two. Uh, My personal favorite, Julio Franco, who basically played forever, who started playing with Cap Anson back in those days and continued to play (laughs) well into, uh, you know... Nice reference there, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You got to go back to... They were teammates back in the day. It was very exciting. Um, And if you know anything about Cap Anson, you know I'm totally joking because uh, even if he had been better back there, Cap Anson wouldn't have been his friend. But anyway, the point is that um, Julio Franco played forever, but he played effectively forever. And he was a a workout demon. He was a beast. So the reality is that uh, if you say he played until 47, 48, well, he did. <laughs> it's not a matter of whether he could. He, he, in fact, did. And he was reasonably effective. And every time he went out there, he basically would break a record because every time he br- hit a home run, he'd be like, the oldest guy in Major League Baseball hit a home run. And he would re break his own record over and over again a couple of different times because he was still Julio Franco. And for some, his story of longevity is inspirational as much as it is shocking the way it worked out because he was technically out of the league uh in the 90s. And then he came back and then he just kept playing and playing and playing and it just kept going. So he was a freak of nature in that regard as an athlete um, on kind of an opposite of the spectrum. I would use uh, a guy like Yarmer Yager in hockey. He's a guy who played well past where most people would have thought. But again, he was effective. But where he's a little bit more interesting and he's a little bit closer to the Manny Ramirez example is that Yarmer Yager was an enigma. There were times where he just didn't try as hard as he could have. And he was so ridiculously talented. And it became a thing where as he reached that last stage of his career, he was still pretty good. And he was a workout fiend. And all of a sudden he had all this passion and all this desire to like work hard And after years of being, because he had stretches in his heyday, in his prime, where he would just take the foot off the pedal. He would take the foot off the gas. And he was just so talented that he was still serviceable, but he wasn't like peak greatness. And then when he finally decided to come back, he went and played in like the KHL for a couple of years or in the Slovakian league, I forget, something like that, for a couple of years and then came back to the NHL in his 40s and then he was highly effective again. And it's one of those, and it's only because he- That is
1: obviously the exception to the rule.
0: The, The comparable with him is that he was an enigma. He was a bit of a guy who would take off and not try as hard as he could and not utilize all his talent to its full capability. And then something happened, something snapped in his head late in his life, uh, you know, later on in his career. And he goes, you know what? I feel like trying now I'm older. My skills have eroded a little bit, but I'm still more than good enough. If I'm trying hard to be able to be pretty good. And then that last stage of his career was like, who is this guy? What has he done with Yarmou Yager? And then at the same time, what that created though, is it created this weird historical conundrum where we acknowledge the greatness of Yarmou Yager early in his career. We acknowledge the greatness of Yarmou Yager as kind of, he got into his prime. And then he suddenly took his foot off the pedal. He was still a great And then he kind of went away, faded off, and then came back roaring back for a little while, you know, putting up good numbers. And then for his age, exceptional numbers. And by the time he was done, he was one of the leading goal scorers of all time. But then you sit there and go like, you do realize if you had tried just a little bit harder when you were at your physical peak, you'd be the all-time goal scorer leader. As it was, you're up there. Yeah. And that's with you taking years off and not giving a crap. So it's like, it creates this bizarre, like when you look at Yarmou Yaga's career, it's the, it's the most bizarre career I can think of because he was playing up until, um, until 2017, 18, 20, 20, 2017, 2018. And his last full season before that, he played 82 games for the Florida Panthers and had 46 points. And by that point he was already like 2016, he was already like 44, 45. Yeah. Yeah. And the year before that he scored 27 goals and like 43.
1: Yeah. It, uh, like, yeah. Your point is well taken.
0: Yeah, like he, he's a freak. Now, I don't think Manny Ramirez really falls into either one of these because I don't think he was i he, he, I don't think he's going to put him. I, I haven't seen him, obviously, in years. I don't think I'm going to doubt that he's going to be a physical specimen and suddenly be a workout warrior because that late stage Yammer Yager literally had posts on social media where they'd be looking at him and he'd be working out at like two and three in the morning.
1: Yeah, he, like you said, he was a special breed.
0: Yeah, but it's one of those things where Yammer Yager flipped the switch later in his life, and then became the guy where if he had busted his ass like that, when he had all the skills and all the talent in the world, we'd be talking about Yarma Yager scoring records. And that's not an exaggeration. As it was, with him being an enigma, he scored 766 goals in the league and nearly 2,000 points. Do you understand? Nearly 2, 1,921 points in the NHL. The only other guy who cleared 2,000, that Wayne guy.
1: Yeah, like that's, you know, he's an elite company.
0: Yeah, like he's, he's, he's basically it. It's him and Wayne basically hanging out in that category because he's got more points than, uh, than Gordie Howe. And I, he might have more points than Marc Messier, although Messier might be in between the two guys. The point is, like, it's absurd. It's obscene. I don't even know what to do with it. Like I said, I don't think Benny no, Ramirez he's number does.
1: two all time in points.
0: Yeah, so, but think about that.
1: Messier like, is number three. Uh, Howe's number four. right? And
0: Yarmer Yagra has more than both those guys. And he took years off, years, plural, off. Yeah.
1: Like,
0: like, it's stupid. I can't even like, I okay, can't even convey you to look
1: it. At it. If you look at the top the guys I just mentioned. Okay. So right. As you said, 1921 points. Okay. He did. He did still get up there in terms of, of games played though. Right. Like he's a, like Gretzky played way less. He played 1487 games. Jager played 1733. Messier played 1756. Mm-hmm. how played 1767 so yeah he took some time off uh, but uh, like you said like obviously he would have had more games if he hadn't taken that time off but in terms you know of actual games played you know his numbers are comparable but i mean you know so if he broke it he would have done it with a lot more games
0: that that's 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 fair but here but here's the thing let me let me say two things about that number one he took years uh, gretzky's whole thing gretzky is always going to be an enigma and he's an unrepeatable situation because gretzky played the prime of his career in the 1980s, which were the highest offensive period in hockey, full stop. Yarmu Yager started in 1990. Point. Yeah, y- Yarmu started in 1990. So the thing is by the... Now, you put Yarmu Yager with his skill set in the 1980s, and he would have challenged some of Gretzky's numbers during that time period because he was already disgusting in a much harder era to score. But I also mentioned that during some of these times where we're talking about, like he basically just stopped trying. And this is when... Like when I'm talking about this, what I'm referring to, and I won't spend too much more time on Yager, but I want to give everybody context. When I'm talking about Yager, remember, I said he was playing. He, when he came back and played, he continued playing and he finally played his last season that ended in 2018. Well, by 2018, he's 46. So the thing is, you need to understand that this is 46. When he went away for three years, he was 35. Right. They, there's a, So there's an entire last section of his career that didn't necessarily have to happen but once he came back, he was surprisingly durable. He played 73 games in his first year back. Well, when, he was, when he came back, he was 38. He took three years off.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he
0: went, to go, he went to go play in the KHL. He played well in the K. By the way, he played well in the KHL. So when he came back for the Flyers, he almost scored 20 goals. He went to play in Dallas. He scored, uh, he scored 14 goals, two in Boston, then 24 goals for the New Jersey Devils. And now by this one, he's well into his 40s, and he's scoring 20 goals, which he has no business doing as a 40-year-old and 40-plus. Yeah, no. Like, that's um, absurd.
1: No, 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 And just for the record, I know this doesn't matter at all, but since we're talking about it, uh, Mike Medano is ranked 24th in terms of career points.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. The thing is, Medano, uh, Medano will be a conversation for another day because you know my fandom of Medano. But the thing is, he he became more of a two-way guy, uh, and that was his focus, especially as they started winning. And um, and it was a wise move, obviously. They they were able to have great success with that. But it's one of those things where Medano never got to fully tap his offensive potential completely. Whereas Jager got to tap his full offensive potential, but he was also skilled like on another level. The point is with Jager, it's the great what if, like I said, nearly 800 goals. And there were stretches where he didn't try during his prime. And then he took off three years and then he took off another year kind of in between. So you imagine you talk about the amount of games he put in. Yeah. Because after he came back, he played like another decade. Like it's stupid. (laughs) Like it doesn't make any sense if you really think about it. Yeah. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to come back and then play another decade when you're already in your late thirties. That's not the way it's supposed to work, go down. And then also as a goal scorer, if you're like 35, 36, 37, obviously he almost scored 30 goals as like a 42, 43, 44 year old. Well, if you can do that at 43, 44 years old, what could you have done when you're 36, 37, 38? Yeah. Well, add another 90 goals to his total. He's at 850. What are we talking about here? Yeah, exactly like that's just obscene. And again, over 2000 points at that stage. And then, and then you're basically, he's still number two all time, but he's number two, like way closer than anybody else is ever going to get. And he played in an era where, um, where it's not going to happen again. That's the reason why just taking this off of Yager now. That's the reason why I, I I laud the accomplishments of Alexander Ovechkin because out of the guys at the top of the food chain in goal scoring, Ovechkin's the only guy who didn't play in the nineties, who didn't play in the eighties, who didn't play in the seventies, all the other guys at the top of that goal scoring sheet all played in one or several of those decades, which were the best offensive decades in hockey history. And it it'll never be like that again because the goaltenders are way too big, their pads are way too big, and there's not a lot of room to shoot. That ain't happening. Yep. But there's I there's a little that's hockey
1: all, history. All obviously all fair points to make.
0: Yeah, it's just a different era. You can't compare the two. It's not. It wouldn't be fair. Uh, you'd have to factor in all these things. And like I said. Every time they look at Gretzky, they look at his efficiency, but you got to remember, he piled up a ton of that stuff in the 80s where he was a monster. He was just that much better than everybody else at that time. And then injuries started to slow him down, so that's full value. But he played the whole 90s. Uh, He retired in 99, so it's not like uh, Wayne Gretzky didn't have plenty of years, although injuries did slow him down. But like I said, some of his contemporaries lost time too, and uh, we'll never know. And and there's, of course, going to be the contingent that will be like, well, you realize that Lemieux lost you know years for cancer lost years of retirement lost this lost that and he's up there and if you talk about points per game Lemieux was a monster too yes yeah so there's kind of your hockey uh hockey history moment there we did get on a good tangent but uh, I I, I like the opportunity to go back in and kind of revisit some of these old players and we'll do more later on bringing it all back to what we were talking about though Manny Ramirez's thing is a publicity stunt but let the man have his fun why not I don't care uh and it's Taiwan like it's not going to impact anybody. And like, and to your point from earlier, it's, it's not hurting anybody who isn't already on a fringe. If you're, if you're made, if you're a professional player in Taiwan, you're kind of on the fringes of the game anyway. Well, no, true. So I've got a couple of other stories that I want to talk about, but now let's talk about my personal favorite. Actually, you know what? Let me, let me do it this way first. Okay. So first I'd like to introduce a new segment on the show and I like to call this the pretentious cross country running report with me.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how people are going to feel about this, Carlos.
0: Oh, I don't care how people feel, Dave. This is the story must be told. Well, I so agree with the,
1: that. Since I know the story you're going to tell, I agree with you. This story does need to be told.
0: Yeah. So uh, I I will include links to articles on stuff like this. So this is one that I'll definitely include a link uh, for the article in the show notes. So Sky Sports was uh, kicking around the idea of using CGI fans if the Premier League returns behind closed doors. There really isn't a lot of deep explanation required to it. It just made me cackle like a Bond villain. I rather enjoyed it. That's so true. realistic. Yeah. Realistically, I get it. You're trying to create some ambiance. Let's do this. Let's take this in two parts. So, Dave, first, what do you think about this on the surface? And then let's talk about whether it's even a workable, whether it even makes sense to try. And we'll we'll get into those two pieces. Well, uh,
1: like I'm have two minds in this for, and I'll tell you why. The the first is, is because I think it's a stupid idea, no matter what. Let's just get that out there. I think it makes more more sense maybe in other sports. I think in terms of soccer it probably makes the least sense of any sport that you people watch on tv that i watch or that people in north america let's say regularly watch on television and the reason for that is there's no you know you don't get the crowd shots because the game is continuous the clock doesn't stop running in soccer when you're getting shots of something that isn't the action on the field it's usually the coach on the bench the referee but it's it's not the fans. Yeah, I mean, you, some fans are going to make it onto the broadcast because you know when the ball goes out for a throw in or, or something like that, or when someone's an idiot and runs on the field, maybe. But but it's not like you know, they're, they're panning the, the the crowd like they would in a baseball game or a football game when there's there's more stoppages. Mm-hmm. Right? I think right. baseball is probably the most um, prevalent in terms of actually having fans on television, just because that's the way the broadcast goes. So I think it's dumb. I think it's it's gimmicky, and and what the hell's the point, right? Like, who watches? I mean, everybody knows that the fans aren't actually going to be there. If you're playing a game with, it's going to be if it actually happens, it's going to be out there. Hey, there's CGI fans, right? So, what the hell? There's no point because the players they're not going to be there for real, so it's not going to affect the actual game. And all it's going to be, if it's anything, is a distraction for the people who actually care about the action on the field. I don't fucking care who's in the stands in a soccer game. Show me the action on the field because that's why I turned into this game. That's that's my thoughts. This is the fucking dumbest thing I've ever heard, Carlos.
0: I love and I appreciate the passion on that one. That that was beautiful. Well said. Well said. So the truthfully, I don't. I don't really care. The uh, in fairness, there's probably some leagues where they've been using CGI people for years. And um, just nobody's nobody's told it, you know, allow me to break the story. They probably need they, at this point, they should have CGI soccer itself, because then maybe somebody could score and it'd be exciting. That might help. Maybe maybe keep maybe use real fans in CGI soccer. They oh, can react I, to that.
1: Look, I've told you of several high scoring soccer games in my uh, top five list that we did back and back a few weeks ago, Carlos. They were both both games had more than six goals scored in them. Just putting that out there.
0: That's fabulous. And they were very, very high level soccer. I, I also saw a lot of goals scored. in One of them was soccer. the Champions
1: League final, which is arguably the highest level of soccer there is.
0: Eh, okay. Anyway, so speaking of the National Tiddlywinks Championship, an equivalent to a championship, as you will know. No, I'm actually going to segue off of this one because I just wanted to get your reaction to it and I was amused and I'm satisfied. So Perfect. that is I'm the, glad, the-
1: I'm glad I could help you there.
0: Yes. And that was a pretentious cross-country running report with Carlos, with me. Now, uh, I do have a beautiful segue off of this. So now, speaking of a league proposing to put CGI fans in the stands to a league that's probably been doing it since 1975, let's talk about the CFL, Dave. My goodness. <sighs> oh, one more thing, actually. If you do the CGI fans, can I make a suggestion to the Premier League? If you're going to do it, I would love for you to do it in a way that it's really obvious they're fake. I want you to do it like, like say, a, a mid-90s WBF video game, where as soon as you get closer, as soon as you zoom in a little bit, they're like, they're like a cardboard cutout. There actually is no depth to them. They're like one-dimensional. That would be amazing.
1: Yeah, I like it. Like,
0: literally just be a digital person that's like, this could not be any more fake. Exactly. We understand. We appreciate the irony, and we've done it anyway.
1: That would be kind of fun.
0: That's what I mean. At least be tongue-in-cheek about it. Be really obvious. Like, guys, this is really what we're doing right now. Um, And it's literally just filler. It's to give somebody some work. (laughs) We're giving a CGI artist some work. You know, that could be fun. Anyway, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the CFL. Or as I shall henceforth rename it, the new CHL, the Canadian Handout League. Dave, the CFL wants up to, let's be clear, up to $150 million from the government, and at least $30 million for now to kind of offset the fact that there's been delays and that potentially there could be some, a lot of lost revenue based on not having games going, you know, because we're approaching the time when things will be starting to wind up for the league, and if they miss games, which they very likely will, or miss the entire season, which is possible, then they, they're looking to have this money to keep as a br- kind of a bridge loan to keep, them up, to keep them afloat. Although it's not really being treated fully as a loan, but it, I, I guess some of the commentary from uh, Ambrosie, or is it Ambrosie? Or yeah, Ambrosie, yeah. yep. So Ambrosie's kind of alluding to it being kind of a loan, but the proposal isn't necessary. There's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of legalese uh, wrangling here going on with that, but basically, in effect, they're asking for this money to keep them afloat. Now, Dave, you're uniquely qualified to answer this one for me. As a member of an institution who my tax dollars are going to where I reap zero benefit, can you explain why more of my tax dollars should go to another thing that gives me no benefit?
1: First of all, your tax dollars go to lots of things that don't give you any benefit, Carlos.
0: Yeah, but can I opt out of these two?
1: I would argue for you personally, uh, most things give you personally no benefit.
0: Oh, yes. And that that's a factual. But I don't need to add more, Dave. But you would also be a
1: hermit if you could be. So yeah. that too. That's fact. Look, generally speaking, I have no issue with tax dollars going to these types of things, provided it's a loan. If the money's going to... Get back to the league, it, you know. I started back to the government at the at the end of it, uh, you know. And there's a proven like, yes, they're guaranteed to get the money back, or some other kind of guarantee, or you know, it's an investment they're making and they're going to get money back in other ways. But it's guaranteed that they're going to get the money they put out back. I'm fine with it. The thing I struggle with this is um, the CFL is not the only league that's talked about uh, potentially going bankrupt as a league. They don't play. There's several leagues in Europe, uh, soccer leagues that have, have been kind of going back and forth with this. Uh, the highest profile league in, it, in it, I've seen t- heard talk about it is the Bundesliga, which is the top level of German soccer. Which I find hard to believe, but uh, that's what happens when you only read headlines and you don't really get into the you know the nitty gritty. Um, with this is with the CFL, like here's the thing: like on the surface of it, I don't like the fact that they're asking for a government handout, but if it's going to be the death knell of the CFL which is a Canadian institution, I, I I think, you know, sometimes governments have to just swallow it. Um, it's it's tough because I don't like the fact, that, I don't like the idea and principle of government handouts, but if it's going to be paid back, I have no issue. Without being able to have fans in the stands, more and more leagues are going to hurt. Obviously, the richer the league, you know, I think the NFL probably has the least issue with this right now because one, their season hasn't started, the training camps haven't started, or where you would be anyway in the process, that pr- hasn't started yet. You know, maybe you have some off-season workouts going on, uh, but but nothing in an official capacity. Whereas, you know, the CFL is a month and a half away, away from where they would actually start. So, I don't know.
0: So much later that the old narrator got tired of waiting, and they had to hire a new one. That literally makes no sense, but anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you there. So that, fair enough, I get your general gist. So let me let me take a stab at a couple of thoughts here on this one. I'm in the camp of uh, I'd rather not have my tax dollars used for that. I am in agreement that if it was a loan, that's one thing. But let's assume the worst case scenario happens and they need the entire 150 million. With the profit margins in the CFL, how many thousands of years will it take them to pay off the 150 million? It's it's all contextual because 150 million is a lot of money for the for an individual but for a sports league 150 million to put it into perspective Vince McMahon had a 500 million dollar war chest and had to give up on the XFL because he was sustaining too many losses and had no prospects of recovering the revenue in time to kind of your point from earlier is that the NFL can sustain this because as long as the NFL can find a way to get the product on the field their television contracts are such that they don't they could have zero fans in the stands and not really care they would be hurt by it but they can live with it
1: They could also put CGI fans in the stands.
0: Absolutely. And we all know that's viable. The CFL, and this is where I take two angles on this. So from one perspective, I hate the fact that they would be borrowing money because I'm being consistent with my position of I also hate when municipalities give money to a team for an arena. My thought process is you're you're running a business here and you're telling me you can't run your business well enough to pay for your own stuff. And you want me to pay for it. It's like, oh, well, we'll let you have some of these revenues. Well, thank you. Oh, you can have your own stuff in events. Oh, fantastic. Because I'm paying for the building. As far as I'm concerned, it belongs to me. And I should be able to do whatever the hell I want with it if I'm going to pay for it. And in the same vein uh, with, this, with the CFL situation, it's not about whether you want to let it die or not. I really don't care if the CFL exists or not. I've watched plenty of CFL games. I think it's a fine product for what it is. It's not my favorite, but it's fine. But the big thing for me is that at that stage, you're like i said i really don't think the cfl is in any position to offer the ability to actually pay it back they can say that but where is that money going to come from they don't make that much money yeah like it'll never come back
1: that, which is a very excellent point i mean i mean that 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 needs to be to be made because yes there's tv money yes there's advertising money i mean there is money
0: yeah and also part of that tv money comes from a television partner who not only pays the league also had to buy one of the teams in order to keep them afloat. So the, let, let's go to the second problem I have. So the first problem I have is that I hate the general idea of giving them any money. I hate the fact that we're basically subsidizing somebody who's running a bad business. And I'm, I'm the same with bailouts as far as like, if your business is being run poorly, I kind of want you to go under because it means you clearly can't run it. So keeping you alive, you know, keeping you in suspended animation, hoping that at some point you'll cure your bad business practices, isn't really the way to go. Like, realistically, now, here's the problem. In order to fix the CFL from a financial perspective, you would also have to kill it in kind of two ways because you'd have to restructure it. Because realistically, what you've got in the CFL is you've got a Western market, which is doing well, at least relatively well. BC is kind of hit and miss.
1: Mostly miss lately.
0: Correct. But now let's, let's break this down, Dave. Let's, let's kind of take this conversation away from the $150 million because we're both, our positions are clear. But let's take this to the CFL itself. In order to make the CFL quote unquote work, and this is the problem is at the same time it wouldn't work, you'd have to let Toronto fold because they clearly can't hold that market. It's not working. And then you'd also probably have to let Montreal fold because they're not doing well right now. Ottawa doing fine right now. And as long as they continue to find great for them. And, you know, realistically, I can give Hamilton its dream and its return to its ancestral home in Manitoba. So if I give them back to Manitoba, it's basically the Western Football League and plus Ottawa. And the thing is, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, it basically would be a stronger league from a finances standpoint. But also, you lose the two biggest markets in Canada, and then why would Bell want it? Well, it's true,
1: right? Because now you're now you're a reg- basically you're a regional league, and 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 maybe there's some value in airing the games locally, right? But I mean,
0: but at that point, your TV rights are worth fifty dollars and forty seven cents.
1: Yeah, if you're if you're living in you know none of it why the hell should you care i mean you can make an argument why the hell should you care anyway but mm-hmm. but i mean if you're if you're talking about you know your whole thing is you're supposed to be in national league and there's been so much talk for so long about getting another team uh, you know in atlanta canada which actually has started to look more and more realistic that'll probably drive a death knell in that too
0: yeah it's just one of those things where i think the cfl's biggest problem is that it's so strongly regionally based it's strongest you know in in Calgary and in Edmonton, it's fairly strong. In Saskatchewan, it's extremely strong, and then it gets murky. Oh, Manitoba, you know uh, Winnipeg, it's pretty strong. Um,
1: yeah, but it, it, Winnipeg goes up and down too, right? Like Winnipeg has as many ups and downs as a lot of places. I mean, other than other than really like Calgary and Saskatchewan, but even then, like it's like it's really Saskatchewan. You know, you're pretty good in Edmonton and Calgary, but you can kind of go the other way a little bit sometimes especially Edmonton playing in like a 60,000, 67,000 seat stadium, right? And getting like, you know, 27,000 fans or 30,000 fans a game. You're still basically the half full. Uh, you know, Montreal was great for a while. Uh, not so good now. Uh, maybe on the rebound a little bit. Toronto is Toronto and potentially always have issues. You know, Hamilton is Hamilton, but at least they're stable in the sense they have stable ownership. And, you know, with the with the new field, the new stadium uh you know they're doing well
0: yeah they are now they are now but it wasn't that long ago that hamilton was struggling too no they
1: had the they had the i mean we're not far removed from the days of if you want to see this team survive we need you to buy season tickets because if you don't buy season tickets there is no hamilton tiger cats right like that that happened.
0: Yeah, and the, this has been my kind of... A, so let, let me pose to you the question this way. This is the problem. Let's get rid of the political element of it. Let's say let's say they're... Yeah, okay, we'll give you the $150 million. Fine, whatever. But at a certain point, it's like, aren't we kind of rewarding a business model that doesn't work, hasn't worked, and has almost no prospect of ever working? Because the current model doesn't actually work.
1: When, you, when you're saying that, though, are you specifically referring to the fact that there are teams that are unsuccessful?
0: I'm referring to a fact that what, there, when you
1: what you, sorry, when I'm just saying like when you say what aspect of the business model are you referring to that doesn't work?
0: I'm referring to the fact that despite having strongholds now that are stronger than they have been in years, there are only a handful of them. And everybody else is one bad thing happening away from basically being on the verge of collapse immediately within about five seconds. They, they basically can't have anything go wrong or they would need another handout. There's no, there's no clearance. There's no room. Like I said, the NFL you know, would potentially lose some money if they lost a couple of weeks. But as long as they were able to play most of the season, they could have zero people in the stands and make money. How, how do we know this? Because Green Bay has no reason to exist outside of the fact that there's so much TV money and they, they negotiated a television package distribution thing early that basically keeps Green Bay in existence. Green Bay is a market that would have gone away 50 years ago had had it not been for this you know, accidental uh, division of television that they managed to do, like I said, by accident. But now there's so much money in it, and the NBA has a similar kind of thing, where there's so much money in the television deal that they can get, get by on certain things and they can make it work. Obviously, they'd rather have the fans in there, but the CFL is so dependent on the gate-driven, where if anything hurts the gate, even for a little while, all of a sudden we're right back where you started because the people that own these teams are not so flush with cash that they can just sit there and absorb losses forever. Like I said, the Toronto team is, bought, is owned by Bell. Why? Because, well, that's, they're basically the only ones who would agree to buy them. And, th- and then they also have an investment in the league where losing the Toronto market makes their television package worth less. So they're like, well, it's chicken or the egg. It's like, okay, on the one hand, we're going to buy this team and, and maintain it to basically make this package worthwhile. And then at the same time, we're also giving the CFL money. So Bell has already been propping up the league for years. Where would the CFL be without that television deal? Who's the second bidder? Who else wants a CFL and would pay as much or even less. Well, yeah, so that so right there, the fact that you're basically surviving. So, really, before this handout concept, you've been getting a handout, you've been getting a handout from a television partner. It's like, look, we need content. Uh, you guys draw decent ratings, but again, not so incredible that you know, Rogers, Ro- the CFL folks, whenever you want to have some fun, go to the CFL message board during the days when they were looking at renewal. And in their minds, everybody and their brother is bidding. Like, there's a bidding war for CFL rights. And it's like, no, there isn't. CBC can't do it. Their, their sports budget has been slashed. Uh, Sportsnet really isn't that interested. So who, who else you got?
1: <laughs> well, there is, right, you, you have basically three options. Yeah. And if, and if two of them are out at, at, the, at the get-go...
0: Uh... One of them isn't that interested. I have good news. Maybe HGTV will offer a couple of hundred bucks. You know, Maybe they'll put you out there.
1: Now you're doing home rental shows with football players, and then you get the game.
0: That, that might improve ratings, Dave.
1: I was going to say, there's a, there's a marketing opportunity there, Carlos.
0: Yeah, flip this house in the CFL. Yeah, I don't know, man. The- I, might, I, might, I might tune in for that. you you might you would definitely tune in for that but (laughs) but the but the point is that like i'm I'm saying this i'm saying seriously i love no one loves slagging on the cfl as much as i do and i have earned the right because i have been to multiple cfl stadiums in various iterations you know the old in in
1: various states of weather
0: correct and also i've watched preseason games regular season games playoff games a great cup you know, the 100th great cup and, you know, clearly the high watermark of CFL's history with Bieber and my presence, like that's pretty much as high as you get as the CFL. But the reality is, so I've earned my, and I've been a season ticket holder for multiple years, for multiple teams. I, I've earned the right to be able to mock them as much as I feel like. But the, um, because I've seen the product, it isn't one of those, things. oh, you've never, seen? yes, I have. I've seen it. I've seen it plenty. Live, in person, on television, I've seen it.
1: It's and okay. to be fair for you, you've dropped a fair amount of money on the CFL.
0: Indeed. And that's the thing, like I, I mean I've I've got a freaking you know Ottawa jersey with my name on it because I thought it was funny as hell and I like the color scheme, but it's not like it's it's not like it's something that's you know proudly displayed in my home. It sits in the closet with other jerseys.
1: But is that a a Rough Riders or Renegades or Red Black? Uh... That was Red Blacks. Yeah, <laughs> that was just a dig I got in there for Oaks, Just yeah, so you know
0: exactly. But the thing is that like this league has not managed with all this time that has gone by the fact that they would need even before the season has presumably started with the knowledge. And, you know, I give Ambrosi credit because he's doing the math. He's crunching the numbers. I don't blame him. He's looking at it and going like, we have no other revenue streams. There is nothing we can do here that is going to give us any room to tide this over. It's not like we have a war chest. And that's that's damning. You don't have a war chest. You can't absorb any real losses here. And that means your league is kind of on weak and rickety ground. And how are you ever going to improve that with or without this loan? Yep.
1: Point made, I think.
0: Like, all jokes aside, like, I would be troubled by the fact that you need this loan faster than just about anybody else. Um, you need it more desperately than just about anybody else because you could very easily go under as a league very easily. And then what? Yeah. So it's one of those things where it's just like, it's like I said, there were the, I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about this because I thought there was some, there, there's a couple of angles to look at this. Yeah. We're talking oh, about sure. CFL's history. We're talking about their present. We're talking about the way that their things are structured. I don't know what's going to improve. Whether they get this or not, I don't know if their future is really secure. I think it's just kind of, you're kicking the can down the road and hoping that all these problems will just, poof, go away. And they won't. Anyway, so, no, that was good. That was a good discussion. Let's talk about, ah, yes. Before we get to the documentaries, though, there's one more thing I need to talk about, Dave. Sticking right. on the football theme, let's talk about my favorite topic of the week. Jameis! Yeah,
1: you know what? Here, here's what I'm saying, Carlos. Here, here's what I am going to say. Okay? So, he didn't have... Options. He obviously wasn't <laughs> going to start in in Tampa at Tampa Bay because they've got Brady. Mm-hmm. Right, the man wants to make some money, so he's getting. I think he's getting paid like a million dollars with potential, and there's incentives for you know bonuses depend based on performance.
0: Yeah, I think there's like I think there's like three and a half million bonuses, something like that. I, I think he but, can get close to five. Yeah, something like that.
1: But here's the thing: he's had the laser eye surgery, Carlos. He's had the laser eye surgery, so I'm thinking. Everything is going to change now because of the laser eye surgery, but it's not going to change anything for new Orleans because he's not going to play.
0: Well, we'll see, uh, you know, Drew Brees did get hurt for a little bit last year. So it's not like it's well, not, I mean, it's, it's it's
1: not out of the realm possibility, but they also have Taysom Hill, Taysom Hill, who at this point I would trust much more as quarterback than I would James Winston.
0: This is, no, hold on. This is interesting. I understand conceptually, but I don't know about that. I, I think the love affair with Taysom Hill is fascinating because it's he's a great athlete let's let's be clear about this he's a great athlete and as far as like a prototype athlete it's funny because you know we talked about the cfl here in the last segment but um basically the um winnipeg won the great cup on a quarterbacking performance like what a Taysom hill brings to the table the ability to run take off and run with the ball and throw the ball a little bit as well i think Taysom hill has like what a 20 million dollar contract something like that for like two years
1: I don't know what the actual. He's, I mean, he's being paid well, right?
0: Yeah, like it, it but I mean, like really well. Like when I, when I'm saying well, I think uh, I'll, I'll look it up. But the but the point is, like he's being he is the de facto number one. Sorry, number two because of the because of what he's getting paid, and um, when they're looking at it from that perspective, yeah, is he worth 21 million to the Saints? Yeah, so it is 21 million uh, with a 60 million dollar guaranteed. It's a two year deal. So 60 million guaranteed is excellent. Like if you think about it. It makes the situation with Jameis fascinating. The reason being is that um when you're looking at it from that perspective, Jameis has everything to gain and really nothing to lose. I'm sure he could have probably squeezed another team for a couple extra dollars, but realistically, not much more, because it, it'd have to be a team that was willing to take a flyer. And the Saints have that luxury because they still have Breeze in yeah, house. Sure. Yeah. They have Breeze in house and they've got Taysom Hill theoretically as well. And if all this fails, you know, they can throw Jameis in there. Like, but I don't know who the real number two is, although. I guess Taysom Hill has to be because of what they're paying him. That's what makes it interesting to me.
1: Yeah, honest, honestly, I, I think this is, they took a flyer on Jameis because, why not? Because I, I really, I mean, if Jameis is starting multiple games for you, things have gone very badly. Because you also have to keep in mind that obviously Drew Brees, no, Drew Brees is the starter, that's no question. And Taysom Hill, regardless of anything else we talked about or you want to make an argument or other people want to make an argument, He knows the system. He knows the offense. He's familiar with the players, right? Whereas Jameis Winston doesn't have that. So it's going to take, I think, a lot of bad things to happen for Jameis Winston to see regular time. I think this is sort of just a stopgap for him that really it's like, hey, let's take a flyer on him. And then Jameis is like, you know what? I want to get paid, but I want to get back to a starting quarterback. And, And we're somewhere where I can go and learn and sort of... Work in a system that's going to help me move to, you know, the next job, right? And I and I think it sort of works out for both sides in that that I don't think either side really has much to lose.
0: I agree with that. I think it's a low risk, high val potential value proposition. But I, for one dave I'm looking forward to the day when we all just acknowledge the fact that Lasik Jameis is now prepared to take his rightful place as the real goat uh, after the Tampa Bay has blasphemed by bringing in the faux goat.
1: I mean. To be honest, like obviously, you know where I stand, and the listeners who have listened to this podcast repeatedly. One, I'm sorry because why anyone would listen to this for that many times, your ears must be bleeding. However, know how I feel about the Saints, and I will tell you this: there, I don't, I you know, I don't want Breeze to get injured. I I don't want bad things to happen to my team, but there would be some amazing poetic justice and just you know cackling happening if somehow Jameis Winston found himself the starter for let's let's say even for just both games against Tampa Bay and just absolutely murdered Tampa Bay and you know threw for like 500 yards each game and they both and they won and you know Brady got sacked like eight times a game that would be just unbelievably satisfying for so many reasons.
0: Not only satisfying, Dave, like secretly, you know that the single best version of all of this that could happen would be somehow James became the starter, became like freaking dominant, like started hating Michael Thomas in stride and putting together like bombs, these gigantic like they and all of a sudden we're sitting there like, all right, look, as much as I like slagging of the Saints, I'd root for the Saints at this point because it's just, the people in Tampa Bay would just be sitting there slacking like, what happened? Is like, I got LASIK, guys. I can see now. <laughs>
1: You know what, though? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? Here, here's the conspiracy theory. This is what's actually going to happen, okay? There's going to be some kind of injury to Breeze. It's probably not going to be real, but it's going to keep him out for a couple of games. Probably one game against Tampa Bay, okay? Jameis is going to go in, absolutely destroy it, and then he's just going to quit football and become a spokesperson for LASIK and be like, hey, guys, I got LASIK, and look what happened to me, you know, as like a Super Bowl winning quarterback or some shit like that. You know, that's all he needs, man. He just retired from the NFL, and Lasik can pay him like fifteen million dollars a year. You don't get concussions, and you still make the money. This is what's happening, man. This is all a ploy, the corporate plot from Big Lasik. Yes, <laughs> I was
0: as you were going through this, I was like, "This is Big Lasik Corp conspiracy plot, isn't it? Isn't it, Dave? It is. You heard it here first, people. I I, I appreciate on several levels that the that the first official conspiracy theory for Big Lasik came from you.
1: You know, occasionally we break some news on this podcast. Fantastic. It's rare, but it's occasionally.
0: Fantastic. I, for uh, I, I one, look forward to our future. Um, you know, the next 10 years of uh, the Jameis Winston era in in New Orleans. You heard it here first. Get ready for it. And uh, you should have all bought your Jameis Winston rookie cards now because now he will be the greatest of all time.
1: Let's talk some documentaries.
0: We will. We will. We will. But what before we do, one quick thing. Let me, let me quickly go from one quarterback to another. I want to quickly do a quick addendum to my discussion from uh, the previous weeks about uh, Jordan Love and the Aaron Rodgers situation, because we've had a little fun with it this past week. So I need uh, I need a moment to uh, quickly right. discuss.
1: I will give you your soapbox.
0: Yeah. So here it is. I- I'm not really concerned or bothered by any of it. All of it kind of has, has gone as the prophecy foretold. But I will say that it is fascinating to watch kind of the, the way the scenario plays out, because sometimes the talking heads, they're always fun. But sometimes they go absolutely off the deep end as far as considering their different scenarios because we've discussed kind of how the Jordan Love thing isn't really going to be impactful right away as far as even if he's a great player, it won't matter for a couple of seasons. The biggest concern that I had was that they didn't address any of the current issues with the team. That's my big concern. But as far as Aaron Rodgers' mood and what he is, it's like he'd have every right to be irritated by the whole thing. But even if he was so irritated that he wanted to deal with the problem, do you know offhand, Dave, what the cap, what the dead cap money is, if they tried to trade Aaron Rodgers right now?
1: I'm expecting it's something like stupid, but I don't know the actual figure.
0: Fifty one million.
1: Yeah, that's he's not going anywhere.
0: Correct. And next season is thirty nine. Yeah, which
1: I mean, I didn't really think he's going anywhere in the next two years anyway.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. Now, mind you, in fairness, let me correct. Let me be hundred percent clear. I believe those numbers are based on him getting cut. If he got traded, I think the number drops down, but I think it drops down to like 17, 18 million, which might be workable for some teams, but that's still tough. The point is, it's still a lot of money, no matter how you slice it and no matter how you try to break it down. And I think everything is contingent upon passing, I think, June the 1st, because I think if you pass June the 1st, it, it knocks the number down a little bit. It has okay. some impact on it. But the point is, like, it's still absurd money, like dead cap money means it ain't going nowhere. The player's no longer on your roster, but it still counts towards your cap.
1: Yeah, that's like a significant amount of money.
0: Yeah. So you basically structured yourself into a contract that paints you into this corner. And imagine if Aaron Rodgers really decides to be vindictive and just decides to screw with you at that point, which he could. I I think from a PR standpoint, he's going to try to play it straight, you know, try to do the anti-FARV in this one and try to be really nice to Jordan Love as much as possible. Because I don't think he has any personal issue with Jordan Love because it's like, look, you're no threat. Like if he's looking at him, honestly, he's no threat right now. Um, it's, not also for th-
1: not, it's also not Jordan Love's fault.
0: Correct. So it's one of those things where I don't think that's going to be the issue. I think it's going to be like looking, you know, doing a little side eye at Matt LaFleur and the Green Bay Administration Trust right there that is like, you know, you guys basically have torpedoed the current season. It's going to be really tough because I think uh, some of the Vegas numbers have their over under and wins at right around 500. So they're looking at the, they're looking at them going like, I don't really know. <laughs> they haven't gotten that much better. And what if they're not as lucky?
1: Yeah, Exactly. Yeah.
0: So I just wanted to throw that in there because I was having some fun with the talking heads and anybody who was proposing anything about trades is like, that's a stretch for this next upcoming year or even the year after that. It might be a stretch. Again, it really comes down to what Aaron Rodgers wants to do in response. And I don't know if he's going to go too crazy doing anything because it's like, well, you're going to pay- get paid a lot of money. But if he goes through the motions and the team's kind of crummy, you're going to look stupid because you've done nothing. Quarterbacks going through the motions, just taking his money home and then you've accomplished nothing. And, you know, what is Jordan Love learning then? He's learning that this organization will screw you over when it's convenient because that's basically what you're learning here. Yeah. So I'm not sure if for Jordan Love that helps him because the reason why I say the wide receiver thing is so egregious is that, well, Jordan Love's going to need a wide receiver too. Devontae Adams is going to be two or three years older by the time you get to that stage. Like, is he going to want to stick around if this team sucks for the next two years? Somebody's got to catch a ball. Woo. That's, I think, the bigger issue that – uh that sticks out in my mind about this whole thing where it's like, look, I'm not so much worried about Aaron Rodgers and Jordan love. I'm more concerned about like, so what are you going to do if you're just going to tread water for the next two years? Well, that's exciting. Hold me back, Dave. I can barely restrain myself for the start of the next season. Yeah, indeed.
1: It's okay. You got Jameis to
0: watch buddy. Dave, I'm I'm, I'm telling you, I am only like half joking by half joking. I mean, 99% joking. I'm telling you, Jameis Winston, future goat, and then the look on Bruce Arians' face is like, seriously, we couldn't figure out Lasik was the problem. Now he can see. Now he can hit a receiver. <laughs> it be,
1: it's just so perfect.
0: Like I want this, Dave. You don't You don't like. I will sacrifice the next five years of Packers football if somehow Jameis Winston becomes an all-time great and Tom Brady sits there looking stupefied. I want the Tom Brady face. I will put it on a poster. It will be in my house.
1: I I I, I will do everything in my power, which is very limited. To make that happen. Like, I'm just
0: telling you, like, we need this, Dave. I need this to be, I'm putting it out into the world. I am trying to speak it into existence. I need Jameis Winston's greatness on display. And I want to see the look on everybody's face. When all of a sudden he's like an elite quarterback. And the Saints are like, how the fuck did we get this? What the hell just happened? And Taysom Hill's like, what is going on? It was supposed to be me. I'm telling you, man. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. And yes.
0: This is a unique situation where there are no losers except Tom Brady, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But there are no losers, is what I'm trying to say. No, none whatsoever. Perfect. All right, let's talk some documentaries. So I'm actually going to give you the choice, Dave. Uh, there's two we got to talk about. We got to talk about the Last Dance, and we got to talk about the Mariners thing. Which one do you want to do first?
1: I want to talk about. The, I think we should leave it off the Last Dance. Let's talk. Let's talk Mariners.
0: Do it. Let's. Uh, first, you got to watch it a little later on. I've been kind of watching it as the weeks have been progressing. You got to kind of binge watch it. What are your f- overall thoughts first?
1: I think my first thought, well, let's put it. This way. The first thought is dude, for, for a team that hasn't won anything, this is a really interesting team. Yes. You know, for, for a lot for the wrong reasons, but, but there's just so much there. And I, I think that's, you know, the interesting thing about this is if you're somebody who, and you know, I, I've recommended this to a couple of buddies of mine since I started watching it and they're like, okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. Whatever. And they're like, man, this is amazing. Uh, You know, if you're somebody who likes baseball, this is entertainment and it's and it's interest, interesting and it's worthwhile. There's so many things. And so the the best is like it just keeps, you know, you think, okay, that was weird, but, you know, whatever. And then something else weird happens and there's another weird story and another, you know, missed opportunity. And then and then it's like, okay, well, we, we didn't we had the chance to sign David Ortiz, but we didn't. But, you know, it's okay because we got Griffey and then Griffey leaves town because they get rid of a stadium, which was a really shitty stadium. But it was better for hitting home runs, you know, and
0: And they literally let me let me interrupt for a second there. They literally design a stadium that goes directly away from Ken Griffey Jr.'s strengths when Ken Griffey Jr. is a large part of the reason you even have the stadium, which only existed because you were able to have an incredible playoff run. And where you defeated the Yankees in the playoffs that allowed you, that propelled you, by the way, the futurely dynastic Yankees, who were about to go on a huge run of winning, you know, four World Series in five years. But that same team, you beat them in 95, which basically saved baseball in Seattle. So you got to build a new stadium, which barely passed by the skin of your teeth because of the success of that team. And then you build a stadium that basically pisses Ken Griffey Jr. off.
1: Yeah. Like, What? You know, it's it's ah, there's just so much entertainment in in that series, right? And so much like head shaking, and and whatnot. It's just it's just unbelievable.
0: Yes, there... and, and, and you know,
1: and there's and there's some good baseball tidbits in there. There's some great stories. Uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. getting the cow for Lou Pinella. Uh, you know the Jello and in, in, in the guys toilet in the manager's toilets in the hotel room where they took all the furniture away too. It, you know, you know the guy getting locked in the porta potty overnight, the fact that Seattle baseball is possible because an arsonist burnt down a stadium. And,
0: you know, it's like it's you're like, just hitting the highlights of some really weird shit that happened yeah. with this franchise.
1: But then there's also like you know the 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 unbelievable talent that went through Seattle. And has nothing to show for it in Seattle, you know. Somebody like Randy Johnson, obviously, Randy Johnson won a World Series later. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. never won a World Series, but mm-hmm. you know is 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 one of the all time great baseball players. Ichiro, right? Amazing baseball player. And and that's the, you know the thing about. I didn't necessarily like the tail end of the the most recent episode, but you know when they're breaking down Ichiro's stats and and and. You know, what type of hitter he is and where he compares to other people in baseball. And it's just unbelievable because the majority of the things that have happened in this documentary that they've shown us, I was not aware of prior to, you know, watching this.
0: Now, can I quickly say a thing? Just, uh, I don't want to interrupt because I of want course, to keep going down the Ichiro side of it because that is fascinating as well. But if we also consider, again, in the random thing of happenstance, that part of the reason that Ichiro was so interested in even going to Seattle was because he idolized Ken Griffey Jr., who he met earlier in his career, and he ended up in Seattle because of him. And then by the time he got there, Ken Griffey Jr. was no longer there.
1: Correct. It was like Ichiro's first year was, I think, Griffey's first year in Cincinnati.
0: I believe that's right.
1: Yes. Which is like... how quickly it it lines up as well, but obviously it doesn't at the same time.
0: It's this team's luck in a nutshell. You have this player, this tra- uh, you know transcendent player who puts up one of the greatest runs, basically a decade of greatness, year after year after year, and you know does extremely well, and then ends up getting so frustrated again. You built a stadium that played against his strengths and basically pissed him off, and it was like the last straw, and then he went back home. You know, he went back home to Cincinnati and, you know, it made sense from that perspective, but it's like, he basically was a magnet that drew Ichiro to you. And it was a situation where like, think about if you hadn't pissed him off and if you had been like, hey, we love you, we'll give you whatever you want, stick around. And he decides to stick around and then you get, then you get uh, maybe a couple more years of Griffey with prime Ichiro and A-Rod.
1: Yeah, yeah I forgot. Yeah, like, it's just, I don't know. Man.
0: The point, the point, so point, Dave, what just happened there is my point. You literally forgot about A-Rod. <laughs> who was yeah, great because well yeah
1: because there's so many other things going on and so many other people to talk about and you know all this all this jazz right
0: yeah and the biggest uh, and the you know the winningest season in the franchise's history was the season that Ichiro got started won the MVP won the rookie of the year and they won 116 games and then got smoked in the playoffs because reasons but also they did this without King Griffey Jr they did this without Aaron and without Randy Johnson
1: Yeah. Also pointing about Randy Johnson. Did you ever realize how close he was to becoming a Blue Jay in 1993?
0: Yep. There's a there's a lot of like hidden almost could has might have beens. And like one of those things is like you'd almost love to see these guys tackle on a lot of the different teams, like look into several teams and find the most interesting ones with the most checkered histories, because um, although it's not the same, obviously, it's not the same. I would love to see one of these deep dives into the Blue Jays because the Blue Jays started in 77 as well, but also could have come over because San Francisco was almost relocated.
1: That's true. That so, is true.
0: So there's a couple of, you know, weird intricacies with that. Mind you, the Jays are not nearly as fascinating as the Mariners, but there's some quirks, I'm sure, in there that you can find. That And obviously the Jays did eventually win. But uh, one point that I've made several times is that the Jays as an organization overall, if you take away a certain run. So basically from the time we were born, you take 83 of the first winning season straight through the world series years. And if I want to extend the the window of the team being competitive and pretty good, I can push it as far as 98. That's about as far as I can go. And if I really am generous with the definition of um, contenders or with, uh, you know, pushing the envelope, but then they go into this swoon where they just continuously fall short. And they're basically just in the middle of the pack, middle of the pack. They're not terrible, but they're not great. They're mediocre year after year after year and then they don't win anything they don't make the playoffs again until 2015. They go over 20 years without making the playoffs. And they have a great run. And then they have a great run in 2016 and then back to the tank. <laughs> but you can argue that at least they had some success. Seattle obviously hasn't even had that. And the talent disparity, like the Jays cannot boast the level of talent that Seattle had under its control whether on the big club or in the minors all at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's it's I don't know, it's just crazy
0: it's flabbergasting it's just uh it's shocking how much potentially great you could put together an all-star team if you take the best players of that seattle mariners team of that decade and put them onto the same lineup card and you just look like this is a murderer's row this team is great on paper they're phenomenal and for some reason they just were never able to put all the pieces together at the same time and then uh, a couple of other points I'll hit on here real quick. Did you find it strange the whole segment about how managers would randomly leave the team when they were presumably successful?
1: Yes. It was like just like Lupinella leaving for Tampa Bay.
0: Yeah. And then also there was the other one. Um, I can't remember who was the other manager who also randomly left.
1: Yeah. Like, I don't remember off the top of my head either. Yeah.
0: But There was another manager who left literally mid-season. <laughs> or late in the season it's like yeah i'm going yeah I'm, i don't i don't have the passion for baseball anymore and then he goes and, and coaches in the minor leagues
1: yeah and it's just it's weird like, i don't know it, it, i mean there's not really much else you can say right other than yeah it's just weird
0: yeah i would say i would i would recommend folks definitely check it out because it's fascinating but one more thing i want to hit on here about that documentary as well um and we talked about it a little bit offline um i found the style to be fascinating i like the style because it's unique Um, for those of you who haven't had a chance to see it, check it out. I'm, I'm, I'm serious, like really check it out, but it's basically like a breakdown of the franchise. It's a breakdown of all the seasons. And then you're creating these charts showing, you know, how many games above 500 you are at different stages. And that gives you an indicator of like how good or bad a year was. And then, but they're using this as like a a device to be able to go back backwards and forwards in time. And it's very simple because you're not really showing like these extensive clips. Although you show pictures and you'll show some video clips, but the but the majority of the documentary is off of this grid, off of this like calendar of time in the franchise's history, and then showing these charts, chart after chart after chart, and showing you different ways of breaking down data.
1: Yes, and don't forget the uh, the LA Law music.
0: Yeah, that was one yeah, of the comparisons you made. It, but it's it's it's, out it's, out
1: of, it's it. I mean, the production value is extremely low. But I feel like that is part of what makes it so entertaining.
0: But let's get this right though: the production value is low relative to like what you expect in a regular documentary. But at the same time, putting all those graphics together to actually make that thing go, actually requires some work, because you can't because that stuff it doesn't just get thrown together on its own. Somebody had to create all this stuff, and then render it and be able to put it in such a way where you're putting it in there. Mind you, it's just giving somebody who you know with great CGI capabilities a job to be able to play around with that stuff. Maybe this will be the person who makes CGI fans for the rest of the leagues. You know, as is the future. Realistically, though, it, it makes it for a very unique style because it because you're still looking at it. You're like, okay, I'm kind of fascinated by what's happening on the screen, but at the same time, I'm, it's not the normal documentary I'm used to seeing. This ain't, this isn't a Can Burns production. This isn't one of those things. It's something else completely.
1: I think you need to take that into consideration while 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 you watch it.
0: I don't think you lose anything. I think the narration is like top notch. I think the actual descriptions and the way that this is done and kind of the way you slow down and speed up and then the narrator's reacting to what's happening a little bit. Occasionally you'll have these moments where it'll just stop and just like acknowledge something weird. <laughs> and then a little, couple, you yeah, and a couple of tongue in cheek references there. I think it's a good style because uh, I believe John Boyes is the one who's responsible for a lot of the narration and he's great. And he does a lot of videos like this on that SB Nation channel. And it's crazy. Whenever John Boyce is doing narration, it's fascinating.
1: I, I mean, I can't comment on that. I haven't heard him on anything else that I remember. So, but I'll take your word for it.
0: We have to get you on more SB Nations, uh, Dave. He does a lot of
1: ones there. Well, I, I did start, I did watch a couple others. He wasn't the one doing it, but I was like, okay, this, there's some good content here.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So that would just be a general recommendation for everybody. Check it out. Check out that channel, because even if this isn't the one you want to check out, there's a bunch of, you know, sports beefs. They they do breakdowns on a lot of stuff. They'll do rewinds on some uh, big time games. And you can check out a lot of very interesting stuff that they'll put together for those. Uh, they've got a unique style, but I think it's uh, it should be more popular than it is because it's actually quite good. If you like if you really like your sports and that you like seeing things broken down, they do a pretty good job. The fact that they got six parts out of the Seattle Mariners. Just think about that.
1: And 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 you know it's not it's not a case where you're like man I wish there was more than wish there was it right like it's all it's there, right like it it does a great job of covering it and there's nothing you're wishing wasn't part of it.
0: Yeah, I think they found a good narrative and managed to get into a groove and found a way to make it interesting and they broke it up one episode per week so it gave people six weeks of content so I think that's a winner. It was uh it was well done and I'm and I'm appreciative of it. So I think uh, we'll. We'll talk about maybe episode six when it comes out, because obviously I'm interested to see the conclusion and see how they wrap the whole thing up. But there's been a lot of revelations and a lot of interesting stuff. I won't spoil any more of that for you, but there's definitely some real interesting insight if you're not too familiar with the franchise itself. So that leaves us with our closing item, which is uh, episode three and episode four of the Last Dance documentary documenting the rise and fall of the final Bulls championship team. Is there anything in chapter three and chapter four, Dave, that uh, struck you as particularly interesting?
1: Well, yes, but I, w- I want—I to say something else for this because I feel this is important to mention, um, and goes to what exactly
0: what you were saying last week.
1: Uh, did you hear what Ken Burns had to say?
0: No, not specifically. By any about
1: chance? Him. What about it? So you know who Ken Burns is, right?
0: I literally referenced Ken Burns a couple of minutes
1: ago. I I only bring that up because the the interview I was watching, the one guy was going off about it. Well, I started listening to you on on NBA radio. The one guy was going, no, I ESPN, but the one guy was going off about it. The other guy was like, who's Kent Burns? But he says, he says this basically his, his take is, and I'll read you the quote, but his take is basically, this isn't a good, it is not good journalism because they had to make the deal with Jordan to get it done.
0: Well, that's what I I talked about, right? Well,
1: that's what I'm saying. I'm giving you your due here, man. If you're there influencing the fact of it getting made, it means that certain aspects that you don't necessarily want aren't going to be in period. And that's not the way to do good journalism, and it's certainly not the way to do good history. My business," said Burns, who you know obviously has a point because he's you know done this stuff. But the but the whole thing is, I'm like, well, yeah, but like pretty much every documentary you ever watch has some sort of bias in it, right? Yes, Ken Burns is an amazing storyteller. I love Ken Burns, and I've you know I've seen most of his documentaries. His series on baseball is absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, most recently I watched the Vietnam war. That was really good, but he can't choose to put, you know, he's got to leave some stuff out. He can't choose to put everything in. And there's obviously, um, perspectives that get lost in that, right? It's in terms of who you give more voice to. So I was kind of like, you know, I, I, I didn't quite like him coming out and talking about it that way. Like, yeah, we get it that you had to make the deal with Jordan. Jordan had to approve it. And obviously, you know, and there's other aspects where, like you said, last week, Jerry Krause isn't alive anymore. He can't defend himself on this. He can't speak to it. Uh, but other people are. And I, and I think that's the thing that I sort of like about this documentary. Or one of the many things is that it's, it's creating this other dialogue about other things. Right. Where where, you know, you still have in the in the documentary, you have Isaiah and Michael, you know, Isaiah Thomas and Michael going back and forth. And it's mirroring what's happening in real life right now, where you know Isaiah Thomas is like Jordan's number four on my top five of all time basketball players. He put uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic, and Bird were his top three, and then Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. right? And and then that and that got Michael going, and and you know and that kind of stuff that's that's out there as well. You know, that's aside from the actual footage of the documentary, uh, which is fantastic. You have this sort of other you know, people spouting off and, and it's re- reigniting those, you know, debates about the pantheon of basketball players as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things on this. I, I'm kind of in agreement with Ken Burns though, because there is a, it's one of the things that I mentioned when I was talking about it last week is that the, doing a documentary is like doing an essay. You're trying to prove a point, whether you intend to make it blatant or not, you are trying to you're trying to, you're making a case for something. You are doing a narrative, you're creating a story, you're crafting a story, and you're choosing what gets included, what doesn't get included. Back once upon a time, like I said, back in the Stone Ages, uh, when Dave and I were in school, we did a course called Historical Methods It literally talked about, that basically talked about this. You know, who's your narrator? Uh, what, how valuable is this source versus another source? A primary source versus a secondary source? I'm not going to get into all that, but the truth is that where you get your information is just as important as the information you're getting and as long as you keep that perspective in mind you can usually kind of counteract it the point that ken burns is saying which i 100% agree with is that because it's not the uh person it's not the just the director of the documentary having their say it's jordan himself as a person who had to authorize this which means everything goes to michael jordan if anything shows him in a light that he can say oh i'm worried that people might see him differently he allowed that to happen he allowed that to be shown still because he could be like no cut that out he literally has complete creative control if we're being realistic he has total creative control over the narrative of this documentary which means it's not the director's vision the director might be willing to be a little bit more might be willing to show more of a dark side of michael jordan which might not cast him in the best light well michael jordan has veto power over that he can literally pull his his approval at any time which means he can't go as far as he might be able to
1: yeah and the director here jason here i mean he's not in the stage of where he is you know like a ken burns who can basically you know if ken burns is making the documentary you got that name you got that name power recognition there too whereas you don't for this director right you know, I mean, people know that. Everybody will going into this knows that Michael Jordan had creative control.
0: Hold on, hold on, hold on. And, let and you, let, let and me you watch it with that. Hold on. No, not everybody knows that. Because I've heard enough people review it who simply don't understand this concept. Okay, fair enough. And don't acknowledge it. And I think that's important.
1: because it is, You're right. It is. and And okay, fair enough.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things. We'll talk about it because we understand the underlying narrative requirement of a documentary. We understand because we've seen enough documentaries to be able to get that. Hey, take everything with a grain of salt. If you really are that curious, look into it yourself. But, um, the director to your point doesn't have the ability to do that. Not just because of the relative stance Ken Burns wouldn't be able to get it done because it doesn't matter how much cachet you have. You need the footage. Well, the person who holds the footage in their hand, it was Michael Jordan, because if the, if Michael Jordan doesn't acquiesce, the NBA doesn't give you the footage. It stays in the vault. And that's three quarters of what this documentary is about. It's that footage from that season because it was all, they got access that nobody else got. And the exclusivity of the footage meant that whoever held the footage, which in this case was the NBA, and they were working with Michael Jordan on this, whoever controlled the footage, controlled whether this documentary would ever see the light of day. And because of that, you got to do whatever they want.
1: Yeah, no, and I get that. and I, I, But, you know, I think that doesn't mean... That you shouldn't watch the documentary. That doesn't mean it isn't, a gr- it isn't great filmmaking. That doesn't mean it's not a compelling story. You know, and all those things. You just have to understand everything when you go into it.
0: No, I agree. Like I said, I, I've literally recommended to folks that they check out the documentary because I think it is fascinating. But I always begin with the same precursor. Just, just bear in mind that Michael Jordan had to agree and authorize everything. Good, bad, or indifferent, he got final say which is always going to tilt the thing because even the people that I talk to, the reason why I said not everybody knows, I talk to people and I mentioned that to them and they're like, wait, really? And I go, yeah. Michael, the only reason it's ever seen in the light of day is because Michael Jordan say okay. That's the reason why Michael Jordan is in it so much. Otherwise, if, if you had this footage somehow, you could cut together your own documentary telling any story you want, you wouldn't get Michael Jordan to be, do interviews for it, but you could interview everybody else theoretically and you could have done a completely different, I could have done a completely different take on this whole thing where it turns out Michael Jordan is a monster and he was the one who personally responsible for ending the Bulls team because he hated Scottie Pippen. He hated Phil Jackson. He hated everybody. And he's been lying this whole time. You could do that. You could slice it together in a way that would make that come off. Now, if I can't back that up, then you can challenge me on it. But in this case, it's one of those deals where it's like, it's hard to say. Everyone's kind of agreeing with the narrative and what's making air is the same thing that's getting in there. That's why the, the Isaiah Thomas thing to your point earlier is fun because um, those two guys don't like each other. They never have. no,
1: no, they don't.
0: Yeah, they don't. And uh, but here's the thing: I, I I have no problem with Isaiah Thomas calling uh, Michael Jordan fourth because you have I, I I think it is spiteful. Yes, I'll agree that it's spiteful. But I'll give Isaiah Thomas this uh, this point here: is that from his perspective, if you are really thinking about it, by the time Michael Jordan finally did beat the Pistons, the Pistons had already been to the NBA finals three straight times and were run down. Like their style of basketball could not be sustained indefinitely. And it's one of those things where, um, by the time they ascended um and this is always always going to be interesting about the jordan thing. I don't think if you say to me Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, I don't have an issue with that and I and I fully accept that argument. I do think though it is an important factor to note that in the 80s it was a very different animal than by the time you got to the 90s. And Jordan did very well against those teams in the 80s relatively speaking, but at the end of the day in the 80s his teams got beaten. It's one of those things where they highlighted and Give you an example of what I've been talking about earlier. They highlighted and emphasized and glorified, you know, Michael Jordan, 63 points against the, uh, against the Celtics. Well, they lost that series and I'm pretty sure they got swept in that series. So it's like, because this was against the 86 uh, Celtics who are considered one of the greatest teams of all time. And, you know, Larry Bird said all these wonderful things about him. It was like, oh, that was, you know, uh, God dressed as Michael Jordan and all that it was like, because they weren't able to really quote unquote stop him. But the reality is they beat the team comfortably. It's like, yeah, Jordan's got sixty-three, but so what? Wow. Yeah. Larry Bird is in a position to be able to heap praise because Larry Bird is is a competitor and he appreciated his talent and he appreciated how hard they had to work to slow him down. But at the end of the day, I'll let you score 103 if it means I win. Yeah. So it's it's you know, it's one of those that that Celtics team was not losing to Michael Jordan. It didn't matter how hard he tried. And then by the time he got to the end of the 80s and the early 90s, when Michael Jordan finally started asserting himself and that team got over the hump and dominated. The the Bulls team had been forged by putting the pieces together over a couple of years. Scottie Pippen got into his own. All these pieces came together. And they were playing a very different brand of basketball by the time they got to the early 90s. Well, the, the Showtime Lakers were done. The Celtics were broken. Larry Bird was a couple of years away from, was basically a year away from being virtually retired. Uh, because I think he retired in 93. And by that point, his back was broken. So he was done. Uh, Magic Johnson was about to go away because he was going to be diagnosed with with HIV. He he was done. the The bad boy Pistons were done.
1: One, well, yeah, and yeah. One of the so bad like, boy Pistons. Is it's a, playing a completely for the Bulls. different
0: context. I'm not devaluing anything they said, but one of the arguments that I always have with folks when I'm looking at it, I'm like, I have to, I have to look at. You have to beat whoever's in front of you, and I'll give you that every time. But and what somebody made an excellent point on one of the shows that I that I thought was interesting, the road to the finals for the Bulls was generally more challenging than the finals themselves. And that was a point that I've made in the past where I look at those finals, those NBA finals, and I'm like, okay, you beat the Lakers for your first one. Cool. The Lakers barely had any steam left and they barely were able to put up a fight. They did, they did the best they could, but it, again, the Showtime Lakers were dead. So it was done for those guys. Uh, you know, Kareem had been retired for years already at that point, like it was done. And um, then you go and play the Trailblazers in your second championship. You know, Clyde Drexler, great player. Was that team great? Well, they weren't able to get back to the final any other time. Third one, the Phoenix Suns. They were an upstart team. Charles Barkley was at the peak of his powers. Awesome. Right after that, Michael Jordan went away for two years. During those two years, it was the Houston Rockets. In theory, based on this premise, the Phoenix Suns should have been back to the NBA finals and they should have won the finals those two years, or at least one of those two years. But no, it was the Houston Rockets. Where the hell did the Houston Rockets come from? You look at those mid-90s teams. Well, the yeah. Knicks ascended, and you know it looked like they were going to go over the hump. They didn't win anything during that time either. And then you go to the second three, Pete, and, you know, 72 and 10 and all that. And, you know, Bill Simmons makes a great argument for the 72 and 10. Was that a great team? Absolutely. Do you know how many teams in that year, it was an expansion year. Do you know how many teams in that year were actually under 20 wins? How many legitimately bad teams were in the NBA that year? A lot. There's a, there's a yep. huge discrepancy, uh, a disparity between the good teams and the horrifically bad teams that year, which meant that the Bulls had some basically cakewalk wins through the, through the course of that year. 72 wins is 72 wins. But again, we have to look at context. Of course. So it's one of those things where I'm not, it's going to sound like I'm trying to devalue the 90s Bulls. I'm not. But I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of, look, I'm not saying it wasn't, I'm not saying it was easy. I'm just saying the game changed. Things changed. Circumstances changed. And then by the time you get to the end, so I just covered the fourth championship. Well, how about the last two? They played the Utah Jazz twice. Okay. Carl Malone and John Stockton. Great players. Hall of Famers. Great, right? Here's the thing. Where were they up until that point because John Stockton and Carl Malone were Michael Jordan contemporaries. They were both in their mid-30s by the time they got to the NBA Finals for the first time. Where the hell were they?
1: Yeah, you're making some, I'm like where you're going with this Carlos. You're making some good observations.
0: Yeah, I pose the question. All I'm doing is just posing the question like look, I'm not knocking any of the, but I'm questioning these are these really legitimately great teams that you're beating in the finals or are you just beating the team who's in front of you? And by the way, the Bulls aren't the only team who have the situation where you have to look and consider it. Let me quickly uh, pander to myself really quick, and I'll bring a comparison to hockey. You know uh, what I mentioned about my my affinity and love affair with the late 90s Dallas Stars, right? Yes. Okay. Let me paint you a simple scenario. I can very easily, if I had the ability to change outcomes, what if I told you I only need to change the outcome of four hockey games – and there's a really good chance the Dallas Stars could have won three consecutive Stanley Cups.
1: I'll, I'd be like, tell me what you got to say.
0: Four total hockey games in three years, Dave. This is all I need to do. In '97,
1: Sorry, I just got a, a breaking notice. Um, Andy Dalton signed with the Cowboys. Dallas for one-year deal worth up to seven million dollars.
0: I greatly will enjoy seeing the Andy Dalton Dallas Cowboys when Dak Prescott doesn't sign his tender. <laughs> <laughs> That would be amazing. I would love that so much. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. Well, at least now one of the dominoes has fallen, so now it's just Cam Newton who's unemployed. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting. That's fair. So really quick, I'll lay out the scenario for you, just so you understand. This is a thought exercise just for people. So what you need to understand is that the 97-98 Dallas Stars were an excellent team. I think... I want to say they won the president's trophy, but that might not be right. But the point is, they were very, they were a very good team. And the thing with that team is that they got to the conference finals, and the in the conference finals, uh, they were able to uh, go to six games against the um, against the Detroit Red Wings. And what happened is they lost in six games, as I said. But when uh, when it came down to it, is when when I'm saying you need to just change a handful of outcomes. Well, that becomes really easy because if you look at the outcome there. Is you lose in the conference finals, you lose in six games against the uh, against the Detroit Red Wings. Well, let me make it easy. You win, you know, two games there. Well, now you're in the Stanley Cup final. Well, that Detroit Red Wings team that year, going back to this, uh, going back to this uh, Chicago Bulls comparison, who do you think the Detroit Red Wings played in the Stanley Cup final in ninety seven ninety
1: eight? You tell me, Carlos.
0: Washington Capitals, and they swept them in four. Yeah. The thing is, up until that point, the Detroit Red Wings had to go to six games against the Phoenix Coyotes, six games against the St. Louis Blues, and six games against the Dallas Stars. They had opposition at every turn, but they ba- they barely scraped by to beat the. Sorry, they barely scraped by to beat those teams, but then they were able to just hand the Washington Capitals their ass. So whoever gets out of the West gets the Washington Capitals. You're telling me a 49 win Dallas team that was pretty well stacked for bear couldn't have. Um, Couldn't have beating that team. They got 109 points in 97-98. You're telling me that team couldn't beat the Washington Capitals in 97-98?
1: Yeah, exactly, right? Like, there's a lot of what ifs there.
0: So, like I said, I only had to change two games. I let the Washington Capitals series play out. So, whatever happens, happens. But probably they win. 98-99, they beat Buffalo. We know about that one. I've talked about it enough. The following season, they get the Stanley Cup final again, and they lose in six games to New Jersey. Game six was an overtime game. So, remember when I said I only need to change four outcomes? All right, Dallas wins game six, goes to game seven, wins game seven. They win back-to-back Stanley Cups. So here's my best-case scenario worst-case scenario, Dave. I changed four outcomes in three years, four total. Scenario one, they get to the Stanley Cup finals three straight times, win two out of three. Scenario two, they win three out of three. Yeah. How's that? That's
1: why I try to spend a lot of time talking about that because, you know, uh, one thing here, one thing there, right? And then you're just going, oh, I wish, I wish.
0: No, I got you. But the thing is, when you're talking about, you know, if you talk about football, it's one thing because it's hard because it's one game playoffs. When you're talking about series, you normally can't affect an outcome that much by just changing a game or two. Well, in this scenario, I changed four games over the course of three seasons, which is basically 300 games. I only need to change four outcomes in 300 games. And I get, and I get potentially, Back to back to back Stanley Cup championship teams. Think of the legacy of that franchise and the players on those teams if they win three consecutive Stanley Cups at the end of the two, at the end of the nineties into the early two thousands. Unbelievable, right? That's sickening if you really think about it. And it's one of the that's how that's that sports in a nutshell, Dave. That's how close the Dallas Stars came to a dynasty, and they were almost there. They almost got there. Yeah, like it's wow, right? That's the fine, razor-thin line. That's why when you see a legitimate dynasty, you give it its credit. That's why I say you give the Bulls their credit. I I don't take it away because you got to beat whoever's in front of you. But when I look at that that comparison, the Washington Capitals were probably the weakest of those three. The Buffalo Sabres had Dominic Hasek at the peak of his powers and Michael Peck at the peak of his powers. That team was great. And then you take the 99-2000 New Jersey Devils. Martin Berger was still at the peak of his powers. Two of those teams were real strong. Yeah. So you don't get to, so if they had pulled that off, you give them full mileage and full credit because that that's against dominating. And you had to get out of the West where you had to beat the, where you had to beat Detroit, where you had to beat Colorado. You, you had to beat these dominant teams full of hall of famers everywhere you go. These teams are great. And they kept beat. And this is the difference in that era in the Western conference. It was Dallas, Colorado, and Detroit who beat themselves each other to death. And they were taking turns for which one of them would go to the Stanley Cup final every single year. Yeah. So that's where one of those things where I have to look at the Bulls in context because I'm like, were they great? Absolutely. They were great. But then I keep going like, yeah, but it would have been one thing if you had been great and then occasionally had like a real foil. I I struggle to figure out who the competitor was that could stand up to the Bulls and give them real trouble once they started rolling in the early 90s and once the teams that were I look at it almost like the bulls were the dominant apex predator in the 90s. So I'll use this uh, nature comparison for you, Dave. They were the dominant apex predator in the 90s, but it was almost like they became that after the dinosaurs died.
1: Okay. I hear you.
0: But I'm just saying, think of the era where the dinosaurs lived, where you had the T-Rex and the, you know, the Triceratops and all these gigantic, and then they all died off. And now you're the biggest mammal left. So of course you're dominating, but you're not, you couldn't beat the T-Rex and you couldn't beat the Triceratops and you couldn't beat, you know, the Stegosaurus. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because they've died off. And then when they died off, you were the biggest one left. So now you're going to crush everybody.
1: Yeah. No, it is. It is. You know, it is too bad that there isn't that 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 other team on the other side during that run. Really. Right. Like you obviously you had Detroit at the beginning. I mean, when you talk about like the battles between the Bulls and other teams and the continuous battles, you're really talking about ones where they lose.
0: Yeah, that's the right. thing. like they kept losing to Detroit until they beat them. And then once they beat them, it's not like Detroit reloaded, came back. And that's why I use the, that's why I use the, not just to be self-serving. The reason why I use the Dallas star comparison from that era is because for like a solid decade, those three teams were beating each other over the head. It was the same three constantly it was dallas it was colorado it was detroit and if it wasn't dallas it was colorado if it wasn't colorado it was detroit and they would meet and fight again and again and again and usually the recipient on the eastern side would just be a lamb to the slaughter because they because they basically iron sharpened iron and by the time they got there they're like we had to go through hell to get here and we're going to kill you you're just in the way
1: yeah right because i mean and you don't think about the team a lot of the time that wasn't on the winning end of those. Right, so you don't think about Dallas as much as you think about the other two because Dallas didn't only won the one, mm-hmm.
0: and that's why I say like that. That's they came so dangerously close to winning at least one more, which would have made which would have changed the context of that era completely for people.
1: Well, exactly, right. That that's the thing; and it changes what you remember about it as well.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like as a fan, I remember it because I understand how close they were. I saw it, and I saw it was a razor th- Like I said, Game Six of the two thousand final was. A double overtime Dave (laughs) so it was like it's not like dude it's not like uh, New Jersey dominated them they had to fight tooth and nail and in the end New Jersey in fact New Jersey had almost a little bit of an advantage because they were coming in relatively fresh Dallas had already basically been to the limit twice they got had to get to the cup final twice and fight through the Western Conference twice
1: yeah which is much harder than you know yeah whoever they're playing right
0: it was it was just a very tough era it was one of those wars of it was a war of attrition thing whoever survived was usually like you've either got nothing left and then the other team has a real advantage or you're so battle-hardened that you're like we're just going to steamroll you dude (laughs) sorry for you know thanks for coming out but we're going to kill you
1: and that's basically what happened with the bulls right they just steamroll everybody
0: yeah and that was and that's one of those things like i still give the bulls credit i'd not take i mean
1: somebody's got to win the championship and and they won, ended up winning six of them
0: yeah And that's where I kept looking at it from the other side where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if once I get to the, once the bull gets to the finals, I guess their finals uh, victories don't impress me that much. And I'm not trying to be mean about it, because, And I think the, um, I could be mistaken, but I think the first championship they won in the second three P was against the Seattle Supersonics.
1: That sounds right.
0: Yeah. Because I think it was a situation where that was a young upcoming team, exciting players. But again, I'm back to where I originally was. Why? To me. I feel like uh, the Bulls would have been different in context to me if it had been a case of okay, you know, they beat the Lakers in the first one, they beat the Trailblazers in the second one, they beat yes, the...
1: you're right, it was the Supersonics.
0: Yeah, in my mind, it would have felt different. I think if instead of Utah twice at the end, it would have been like the Supersonics twice, because you know maybe the Supersonics are in the ascend and you know here they are now they're, they're your new challenger in this late stage as you and, try to hold and on. And that
1: was the team they had. Um... Gary Payton and Sean Kemp were the big big stars on that team.
0: That's right. And it felt like the team of the future at the time, but it just never materialized. It's, they didn't come back. It was the same thing as the Phoenix Suns earlier on. It's like, okay, well, in theory, when Jordan's out of the way, okay, Phoenix Suns, you know, Charles Barkley, I guess you win two you two NBA championships now. Didn't happen. Portland Trailblazers, they didn't come back. The Lakers never re- didn't retool until the end of the decade. And then the Bulls ended. So right when they ended, again, timing is everything, right? So here's the question. And let me pose it to you this way. This is another what if, but let me pose you a question. Let's say after the last dance, the Bulls come back one more time. They get Phil Jackson, they got Scottie Pippen, they got Michael Jordan. They come back and run one more time out there. I believe right after that last Bulls championship is when the um, Lakers started winning. Their did their threepeat.
1: Yes, I mean they're the next dynastic team, right?
0: Or it might have even been San Antonio. I know somebody came out. No,
1: it was it was San Antonio.
0: Yeah. Okay. Antonio. Sure. So let's play. So let's keep this simple. So now the Bulls come back retooled, right? But now they're playing an ascendant San Antonio team with a young Tim Duncan and uh, David Robinson, and uh, they're coached by Greg Popovich. After yep. three straight championships, what happens to the legacy of this exact... In, in almost in a way, it worked out perfectly for Jordan, because him retired. Steve
1: Kerr went to that team, eh? He, he left the Bulls and went to the Spurs.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, But now, picture this. They go in there, and again... Michael Jordan's legacy—the part of the reason why he's seen as the, you know, unquestioned, you know, goat of all time—is because his record is unblemished. Once they get to the finals, they win. What if they get to that seventh final, you know, which is, you know, incredible, um, and then they lose to that Spurs team? Maybe they get their asses handed to them because they just ran out of gas. Yeah, who knows?
1: Uh, It was just for the right. It was the Knicks that that they played against the Spurs, and they the Spurs won at four to one.
0: Yeah. It is one of those things like finally the Knicks got there got there again but it was it was done by that point. So you never know. It's one of again, it's a great what if and then I think right after that is where the uh, is where the Lakers go and win a yes. couple three in a row. Yeah. But like think about that. So the Bulls try to run it back a couple of years after that, they get to play San Antonio and then potentially LA with Kobe and Shaq and all that. Yeah. It would have been it would have been fascinating.
1: It, wouldn't, it would it would have been fascinating, but obviously, you know, Jordan goes through his second retirement. And then obviously comes back with Washington. But at that point, he's not the same Michael Jordan.
0: Yeah. I just feel like the Michael Jordan's timing worked out perfectly. It's one of those things. Like, I don't think he planned it out that way. But I think it was interesting that the beginning of his dominance begins with those Leviathans dying off all at the same time. Bad Boy Pistons, the Showtime Lakers, and the Boston Celtics all die off. They're done. They're not going to be relevant for a while anymore. And then they have that run where they're where they're doing great. The Houston Rockets randomly get two championships in the middle. <laughs> kind of forgotten about, but they're there. You know, they won two championships kind of randomly in the middle. They run off another three-peat. And then after that, it's the era of San Antonio and the Lakers. Yeah. No. And, you're just, and you're just like, so literally you bookend these two eras where like, I feel like I like the San Antonio Lakers teams and I like the 80s dominant teams more than kind of what was in the middle. This is fair.
1: No personal preference, but... But, yeah, I mean, I I, I think you could and I think you can say all that without discounting how good that Bulls team was.
0: Well, that's right. Yeah. Your, Your job, your job, if you're playing sports, is to beat whoever's put in front of you. It's what it's not your it's not your choice. You don't get to pick your opponent. You have to you have to beat whoever you get. So you get credit for that. And if you don't lose, well, then guess what? You don't lose. So I can't take that away, but it's it's just interesting. It's an interesting thought exercise because you just don't know. I, I just feel like sometimes I'll look and I'll be like, not every championship is equal maybe is my overall point. I just don't feel like every championship is equal. That's fair. I think
1: that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, but to get back to the actual document, I would say the only real takeaway is I feel like they could have made like a second like side documentary, you know, the unnecessary nonsense of The Last Dance on Rodman, like the Rodman episode, like which is episode four. Like, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I just felt there was so much there that wasn't covered. I mean, obviously, you're talking about the team, and it always goes back to the, te- right? Like you it talk four, about the team, right? Was it four,
0: Phil? I thought three no, was Rodman, and I thought, four was Phil.
1: I thought it was the other. Oh, uh, sorry. I'm, I'm. You're correct. I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm thinking that the other way. Yeah, they went but Rodman yeah. first, and then Phil. Yes. Yeah. No, they did. They did. They did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, You know what I mean? Like, there's so much there. And even with the Phil Jackson, like you got into a lot of it, but that that's the thing. Like, I feel like because you're trying to, you know, do like the thing where you did like a Jordan episode, most I'm talking about the main focus of the episode and then a Pippin episode, Robin episode, Phil Jackson episode. I mean, I don't think they're going to do that all the way through. No, um, it's already that one of the n- episodes is coming on uh, Sunday night or the next next two is about the dream team. Yeah, to focus on the dream, which I'm really looking forward to watching that one because damn, that was a good basketball team. Yeah, um, you know, and some of the relationships there, and I'm sure they're going to talk about the fact that Isaiah Thomas was left on that off that team and and how that went down and and the rivalry and hatred between Thomas and uh, Jordan and, and stuff. I uh, you know, so I enjoyed the episodes. I I I wasn't I didn't think they were quite as, as standalone episodes. I didn't think they were quite as good as as the first two, but. I, I enjoyed them. I particularly enjoyed the the Phil Jackson one because I didn't know as much about uh, Phil Jackson, obviously, because his time as a player and, and whatnot was obviously well before my time. Uh, but, I, you know, the Rodman stuff I knew, I just felt like they could get more into it. But I really enjoyed the Phil Jackson stuff more because a lot of that stuff uh, I, I wasn't aware of. And I, and I felt interesting and, and really to get to know the character and sort of his presence over the Bulls and how we brought in, different things and how the triangle offense came to being and and that kind of thing. I, I, I really enjoyed it. So the, in terms of comments about episodes, I think I'll just leave it
0: at that. No, well, that's fair enough. I get you. I think uh, to your point, I think one of the most, so I think, I don't know if Rodman would be that interesting really to dig into beyond because it's one of those things where it feels like Rodman um, it's, it's a combination of he wanted attention, but also at the same time um, it was just a different era where he could try to do some of these things and just kind of get away with them. But at the same time, he was a basketball savant, so he understood like his role in that. The the Phil Jackson though angle is fascinating because that's just a weird and interesting dude. Um, I do think though, from the Phil Jackson thing, the most interesting part for me was kind of the palace intrigue to put Phil Jackson in that position, where um, I think it was Doug Collins, where he had basically he had he was coaching the team, and then you know Phil Jackson got to saddle up to the uh, the name escapes me, but the guy who basically invented the triangle offense.
1: What I feel, his name was like Tech something. Yeah. But
0: but once Phil Jackson became an acolyte of the triangle offense, which was what Jerry Krause wanted, it became a situation where like, okay, I've got the guy that I want. It's ironic given how acrimonious the relationship became not long later, is that technically Phil Jackson became the guy because he became a student. Tex Winter. Okay. So Tex Winter. Perfect. So he became a student of Tex Winter, who is what the guy that Jerry Krause wanted around. Yeah. So it's like Jerry Krause then made you the guy, and then by the time we're done, you know uh, everybody hates Jerry Krause.
1: Well, yeah, pretty much.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of interesting the way that plays out. To your point, I think yeah, there's going to be the dream team episode, and I think I think the focus is now going to shift more to Jordan and the season itself. Because, but I think they wanted to establish the characters, although you know, uh, which I think
1: I mean I think the way they're going about doing it so far is 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 quite good.
0: Yeah, they have 10 episodes, so they, you know, they can they can afford to flesh out the story a little bit, give you some context. That way they don't need to focus on those characters later. What? We don't get an episode of Tony Kukoc? You're not ready for the uh, I Steve- want the
1: Steve Kerr episode, man.
0: Yeah, the Steve Kerr episode. It's like, what happened? So then Michael Jordan and I fought to the death. It's like, but you're both alive, are we? <laughs> you know, it's like, what happened? Where did you sell your uh, where did you settle your fight overall? It's like, I thought you guys just threw punches. No, no, we had to have a little bit of a bigger fight where it's like but you both seem to come out of it unscathed. Well, we went to a place where it wasn't going to affect us as much. Where? Fight Island! Nice. Hey, you know, I, I brought it back. I brought it in there.
1: And I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So I think we're done with the, that documentary for now, though. We'll have more to say, obviously, with the next couple of episodes. We'll have two more episodes to talk about. So that'll be cool. We'll have the final episode of the Mariners documentary, tying it all into a nice bow. We won't always spend this much time on it. But these documentaries, frankly, were fascinating. I thought it was really interesting. Since I brought up our favorite island of fights, I won't do it every time. You know, got to spare the save the throat a little bit. But um, so UFC 249 is right now scheduled to go off next weekend. So this isn't what I'm looking forward to because I genuinely don't know. (laughs) But I looked at the card and it looks pretty stacked. Uh, I'm actually kind of more interested in the undercard. Even the prelims and stuff look pretty good. But uh, let me angle this into one more thing here. And as far as it goes, I kind of want your thoughts on this piece. The interesting part isn't so much that Dana White is trying to do UFC 249 because come hell or high water he was going to try. But they're doing UFC 249 in Jacksonville because they get to capitalize on the same thing that now AEW is going to get to capitalize on which is the previously mentioned political bribe from WB.
1: you're not that important <laughs> that's all that's all that's all I'm going to say like you know what i mean like the the there's the, something is like oh you know like i get here's what here's what i'll say mm-hmm. okay there are a lot of people out there that are genuinely hurting financially from various aspects of the economy shutting down how do you how do you tell them you're not important but you know some guys fighting in front of no fans are they're essential like this it's just it's it makes me angry because it's such bullshit right like yeah do we want sports yeah do i want to watch sports of course i do right am i gonna watch ufc 249 no am i boycotting ufc 249 no i probably wouldn't watch it anyway Right, unless of course we were potentially in like a, if we weren't in a lockdown situation or vaguely lockdown situation, then I might, you know, or I maybe you and I are going out to a bar to watch it, or who knows? Yeah, I think there's
0: scenarios where it'd be worthwhile, but it's tough to even even myself as a big fight fan who hasn't had the chance to see a proper card in a while. I'm interested in the undercard, and the undercard will be like on TSN and stuff, or even Fight Pass. Like I'll watch that. I just don't know if I'd pony up the sixty bucks for an empty arena show in Jacksonville.
1: Yeah, but it it, it's like how. Like, I get it, Dana White, but at the same time, I don't because you can't justify this. And, and and like government of Florida, you can't justify in any way, shape or form that this is an essential service. It's complete bullshit. And yes, it probably was a bribe, you know, because if this is an essential service, then put people fucking back to work. You know what I mean? Which probably shouldn't be happening. Like, honestly, the guy selling popcorn at this arena is more important than you are, Dana White. And your fucking Fight Island and all your other shit, right? It's just bullshit right? Like it's going to come back eventually. We don't need this. And, and, and Florida shame on you and the government of Florida, Rick Scott, I think. Nope. No, he's a Senator. Now I can't remember who the freaking governor is. Uh, just shame on you, man, because this is, it's, it's just BS. You're not an essential service. Neither is WWE. Neither is the NFL. Neither is major league baseball. If they decide to do one of their spring training, you know, divisions and that's how they're going to play out the season. Right. Stop acting like you're more important than everybody else who actually is important.
0: I like it. See this. This is what I was looking for back on episode one. We were talking about the NFC Championship Dave. This is what I wanted. Just it just you know what. I mean we're
1: in a fucking like medical health emergency and you're like you know what. Hold on a second. These guys got to fight each other because we got to make our TV money from the pay-per-view because we're that important. Fuck you. Fuck you.
0: That is a beautiful way to conclude this episode episode 52 of the unnecessary nonsense podcast but before we go last thing we're going to say other episodes like this are available on itunes spotify google play and uh you know the social medias will be on the will be on the show notes but for god's sake may, maybe we'll update them maybe we won't i'm still trying to figure out something with that but with that said i'll uh, leave it at that we'll come back with episode 53 and we'll have a couple more things to talk about including now future starting quarterback of the dallas cowboys andy dalton That breaking news story really makes me happy, but I don't want to go another two hours. We've already gotten there. There's already a solid episode, and there we are. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast.